So does density equal Democrat? I mean, it seems to be that no matter where you go, whenever you look at an electoral map in the United States, you always see like this big, like red blob and then a couple little blue areas and people get mad and they're like, how could we have lost? Well, it's because a lot of the people live in those little blue dots. So why is it that living in a city almost guarantees that you're voting to the left? And what we're going to talk about today is, is that just an American phenomenon? Is it an international phenomenon? Does it happen everywhere else? Is it just unique to certain places in the world? We're going to discuss all of that. And if you hang out with us, we're actually going to give you evidence for why it exists. We're going to, we're going to talk about that. But even more interesting, we're going to start talking about, is it starting to change? And we have about four urban centers to show you where the results probably going to blow your mind. And I guarantee you they're not what you're expecting. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument Powered by Good Ranchers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description. We would love to have you join our community chat to get to know you there. We have a channel dedicated to getting your episode ideas, and a lot of our ideas come directly from you all. Thank you so much. All right. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now. But other than that, a reasonably good guy. With us, our beautiful bride. Not our beautiful bride, my beautiful bride. She's not your beautiful bride, Hamilton. How many times do I have to tell you? My beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then our political prognosticator, resident historian, and mostly benevolent warlord in training, Christian Hines. This is right up my alley. But real quick, I want to give a shout out to Jose, who I ran into at the Dulles Gun Show this past weekend. Um, he's a huge fan of the podcast, huge fan of your shorts, Nick. Um, he, it was, I think this is the first time this has ever happened to me in public where I was just in a public place and somebody came up to me and was like, are you Christian Hines? And I was like, yeah, I, I didn't know what to say to it at first, but Jose was a fantastic guy. We had some really, really neat conversations back and forth about a lot of cool stuff. So I just wanted to give him a, a, a shout out. Thanks for, thanks for tuning into the show. It was really nice to meet you. Shout out to Jose. And then finally. Our producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. How you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. I'm good. doing really well. Good. All right. Well, today we're going to we're going to research a question I think most people think they know the answers to. Um, but the more we dug into it, the more I, I would just say I know there's a lot of revelations that I didn't expect. And I got to give Christian a lot of credit here because he's had this ongoing theory for what, about four or five years now? Um since 2020, so three years. Okay, three years, three years. I was giving him a little too much credit, but he's had it for about three years now, and he's got some interesting data. But the first thing that we're going to talk about is kind of, you know, why does this exist? Why does this exist, and is it just an American thing? So let's go ahead and look at our first map here. This is the point I, I want to bring out because I will hear conservatives a lot, right? And, and I don't think anybody is, is questioning my own conservative credentials here, but I will see conservatives look at a map like this and be like, how could we have possibly lost the election? Because geography doesn't vote. That's how, all right? There, there are more, if you look at Northern Virginia, if you look at Northern Virginia, there are more people that live in Fairfax County than the entire state of Wyoming, and, and it's like three to one. It, it's not by a little margin. So when you look at these little blue areas here in like the San Francisco area on the West Coast, Los Angeles, you know, Miami, you know, Austin, Dallas, you got a ton of people living in a relatively small space. So we, we've, we've got to be intellectually honest about who's voting and why they're voting. So that's why go over to the next map. 
And this kind of provides a, a little bit more accurate depiction because this is not just based off of geography. It's also based off of population. Can you slightly describe it for our audio listeners? Sorry. Yeah. The first map was the, the typical, it was by a county map of um, the United States and, and how it voted in, in a, a thing, 2020 presidential year election. This next map that we're looking at right now, this is one that's focused more on not just um, the, the county or the precinct, but actually giving you a population depiction as well. And when you look at this, all of a sudden, it, it becomes a little bit easier to understand why these urban centers obviously have a, a much higher influence on the election cycles than, say, a, a rural county in western Nebraska. Um, so even though on, on a map it doesn't take into account population size, it, it looks like, you know, western Nebraska is huge, right? There's very, very few people living there. And so we just need to be intellectually honest about that as we look at election cycles and, and more importantly, this idea of why why would it be, why does it seem to be um, almost universal that urban populations tend to be more liberal? So the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to show you a quick, we're going to show you half a clip of a why minute we did asking this very question on why cities are liberal. So let's go ahead and play that clip. Why are cities overwhelmingly left-wing? And why does this political divide between urban and rural places appear in nearly every developed country in the world. No matter where you look in America, the most stunning political divide isn't between blue states and red states, it's between blue cities and red countryside. Major cities like New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, and San Francisco are known for their progressive policies and strong democratic support. But once you venture out of these liberal bastions, the countryside around these urban cores tends to be a lot more conservative. And while the urban-rural political divide is famous for producing extremely divided politics in the U.S., it's worth noting that this isn't a uniquely American phenomenon. This divide is also present in places like Canada, where Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal all lean left, while rural areas in Ontario and the Canadian prairie trend right. In the UK, we can find the exact same thing. Urban centers like London and Manchester are strongholds for the Labour Party, while rural regions in England and Wales regularly vote for the Conservative Party. Incredibly, we see this exact same divide all over the world. Hungary, Brazil, Argentina, and Spain all have a clear divide between their left-leaning urban centers and right-leaning countryside. Pause there. Um, so the, the reason why we want to talk about this is because this, this is something that seems to be rather global. Um, and, and so we started asking the question like, okay, why, why would this be? What, what are some practical reasons, um, but both practical and potentially moral reasons why urban centers would tend to be more left of center, um, would tend to favor greater government intervention. And I think it's important to understand too, that there can be distinctions in there, right? Like you, you can have more left-leaning libertarians or whatnot that don't want as much, maybe don't want as much government intervention or, or, or whatnot. But I, I want to look at a, a couple of things that I, I think make sense when we start to analyze, like, why would the city want more government services? Um, and, and I think part of this comes when, when you pack a bunch of people in very closely to one another, like all of a sudden there becomes a, a tendency for greater conflict, right? I, th I think that makes sense. Like if, if, if Tina and I have our, our music loud at our house, our neighbors don't even hear it because they're, you know, a couple acres away, right? It, it's, it's not really a big deal. But if we were playing our music at the same volume in an apartment building, well, now all of a sudden you have the potential for conflict. And, and the more instances that you have for potential for conflict or disagreement, the more rules kind of play a, a function, right? We, you've, you've heard that statement before that 
Um, good, you know, good, good fences make for good neighbors. And really all this is, is about setting proper boundaries. This is another thing that we talk about and they, they talk a lot about in psychology about like setting boundaries in order to maintain friendships or maintain relationships and figuring out what people are comfortable with. Well, if you, if you take that boundary comparison and you move it into a, a, a political environment, I, even if I don't like all of it, or even if I'm frustrated by some of it, I could understand why you know, millions of people living within a couple of square miles are going to want more boundaries with respect to interpersonal interaction um, because of, of the propensity for conflict or disagreement or everything else. And so if, if everyone kind of knows the rules and everyone kind of agrees with the rules and feel like they were part of the rules, now all of a sudden it's like, okay, this, this makes sense. And maybe I don't like all of them or maybe I, I, you know, I like one but not the other, but ultimately I get it. And it provides a very, very clear field where we can we can interact with one another. Does I mean, does everyone agree that that's that could be whether you agree with it or not? That could be a logical reason why an urban population would need more or would want more, you know, government intervention rules or regulations. Sure. Got, a, got a quick quick super chat that's relevant to this. Uh, Zim the despot said not just political leanings either, but culture as well. There's a big difference between North Idaho and everything south of Riggins or outside of PST. No, no. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the super chat. No, that that's absolutely true. And, and cause I think there are two components here that explain this. One is the, one is the, what would I call maybe the more the practical considerations and one are the cultural considerations. And so from, from a practical level, well, again, let me, that original question, everyone here agree that we can understand why, um, you know, an urban population would want maybe more police and more rules governing interaction and behavior within public spaces unless you're Minneapolis <laughs> <laughs> no but like like here's the problem with that it's a very it makes sense on paper but then when you look at individual urban centers in the US or Canada for that matter um, or even some other foreign countries out there it's pretty clear that that is a, a potential hypothesis but it kind of falls apart in in it doesn't explain the whole picture. For example, well, no, I'm, I'm not. Okay, so let me clarify something. I'm not explaining. I'm not saying it explains the whole picture. Oh no, I, I know that. Yeah, I, I I'm know that there's there's practical and there's cultural. I think this yes. might be a, one of the practical. This is reasons. one of the practical reasons, yeah. and I know that that you don't hold this this position. So it's not. I, I'm. What I'm trying to say is like, look at some of the richest places in America: Silicon Valley, you know, San Jose, Northern Virginia, like. Those are home to some of the richest counties in the entire country. In fact, the richest place in the United States is actually in Virginia, Loudoun County. Mm -hmm. These places don't need government welfare. Well, actually, Northern Virginia needs the <laughs> needs the <laughs> entire bureaucratic state to keep on running. But Silicon Valley, for example, does not need you know more government handouts and services. Silicon Valley is is totally rich on its own, mm -hmm. right? There's there, there, there's no need for a large welfare state. Um, now there's a lot of people that vote for one regardless, but that gets into the whole question of, of, you know, if this was simply about the, the need to consume government resources or taxpayer resources in order to, to survive or thrive, then that would actually be an argument for why Silicon Valley should be heavily on the right, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that it's just, oh, urban areas need more government resources or government services or social welfare programs or anything like that, because 
again, you can look at you can look at some of the richest urban places in America that don't have a need for those things, and they're also overwhelmingly left wing. Well, here's the part that I, I would push back a little bit on that. Right? There's a difference between like welfare programs and like government services. Obviously, welfare programs are government services, but not all government services are welfare programs. So, for instance, now a, a libertarian would would make the argument that look, through spontaneous order and through free markets and through people requiring goods and services, the market will respond to that. And I tend to agree with that. But when you look at a lot of these urban areas, I think that we have generations of people that have grown up with an expectation that government does certain things, right? Government ultimately kind of manages trash collection, even if they, even if they, um, contracted out to a private company, right? The, the government's going to be responsible for, you know, planning the roads and the sewer lines and, and things like that and building codes. That's, that's the part that I'm getting at is that t- let's take social welfare aside just for a moment and let's focus primarily on like on the infrastructure and the management of like crime and things like that. I, I can understand why, like for instance, in, in, in rural Culpeper, when they tried to pass a noise ordinance, like, hundreds of people showed up at the board of supervisors meeting to be like, no, this is nanny state bull crap. However, I could understand why an apartment complex would say, Hey, you got to keep your music below this decibel past like 10 PM. Right. That, that might be the sort of thing where, you know, I would bristle at that in a rural area where people should just be able to talk to their neighbor and figure this out because I, I have two neighbors Right. But if, if I live in an apartment complex with 150 people, you know, I, I don't know all of my neighbors. And now somebody three floors up from me could be playing their music so dang loud that I can't sleep and, and get to work. So I'm just saying, does it make sense? You could still come up with a private, you know, they could be a hotel rule, not a city rule. Right. But or a, a apartment rule, not a city rule. But I can understand why people living in that close proximity would need more rules. Yeah. Christian understands that. Remember Richmond two years ago? <laughs> Oh, we that sucked. I stayed at a place that I stayed at a place. We got an Airbnb for Richmond during session. And I, I want to say it was like every the crease was like every Wednesday you could smell the marijuana coming through the walls. Like it was, Oh, that was the least of the problem. It was well, and people miserable. were screaming and yelling outside. Yeah. Like all the, all of us went down to Richmond for this so that we could do recording mm. and everything. And so Christian had a oh. room in the back <laughs> And he remember when I screamed at those college kids yeah. screaming at them. You, you it was your like head out 2 a.m. And he didn't scream. He yelled in a very guttural and manly yes. voice. And I can't, re- voice. Yeah, I can't repeat voice. the words he said. It was it was like 2 a.m. And there was like 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 20 of these college yeah. students literally next door on the balcony. And again, apartment complexes just as loud as you could possibly yeah. be. And so I just opened the door and then screamed, shut the F up. Oh. <laughs> and they shot it back. But you know what? They turned the music down. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's, that's my point, right? Like it, when you have a bunch of people living in close proximity, more rules usually need to be established because there's, there's less chances. This is kind of the weird dynamic. There's less chances. You actually have, well, one, you actually know your neighbors uh, because there's also kind of a high rate of turnover. Um, like we've, we've had the same neighbors for 13 years. Most people living in an apartment complex can't say that. Not, not all, but most. Um, the other thing too, and this kind of fits into the cultural thing, and I've already seen some comments on this on the chat, is 
you also have multi, you have a lot more multiculturalism within urban populations than you do within rural communities. I think one of the things that's interesting is the same people that will lecture the country on multiculturalism and, and our, and our lack of exposure to other ideas and whatnot, which, which can be a fair critique at times will also move into the country and then instantly try to tell country folk how to live. Right. Um, there, there's they a, don't understand that culture. Yeah. The, the farm bureau, um, <laughs> the, the farm bureau, actually has a book called Welcome to the Country explaining some of the, the the cultural differences between urban and rural life. So when people like get their vacation home in the country and start asking questions, like, what's that smell? It's like, that's where your food comes from. That's, that's that smell. But again, the argument for the, the additional set of rules is now if you have a multiculturalism within a packed environment and people just have different expectations um, with respect to things like, again, how loud can your music be? How late can you throw parties? You know, um, you know, smells and stuff like that with respect to, you know, cooking things or, or anything else. Like I get it. I get it. Why they want more of these rules established. So everyone kind of knows wh where the boundaries are. And now I think those are some practical reasons why people in urban areas might be looking for, for more government. Um, I, I, I think, um, it, also, depending on where you grew up and, and how long you've been around it. I mean, if everybody around you thinks one way, it's highly likely you'll think that way as well. And and you won't understand a different way. I, I was speaking with a gal back in our soccer, taking the kids to soccer yeah. days, and she was from Germany. And she did, first of all, she didn't understand why Culpepper didn't have sidewalks going everywhere. <laughs> Um, and she didn't understand all these people that wanted to be left alone on their own property. She did not understand that. She thought that that was actually like a moral negative yeah. that people were so antisocial. Um, and she, she liked the idea of your kids being assigned to a soccer team and staying in that soccer team the rest of their lives, like through their childhood, they're assigned yeah. and, and there is no moving around and there is no, um, making adjustments for your own what for what your own preference is because everything is focused on the collective, yeah. and so it, they did one hundred percent total did not understand. I'm like you can you're welcome to go back to Germany. <laughs> so if you liked it better, we got a, we got a question here from. Uh, uh, forgive me if I screw up the pronunciation here. Jai Secord question: Why don't we then separate the laws from the city from the rural areas? That's actually a really good question, and it's one of the reasons why when you look at the United States and how it was established, and, and it's not just the United States and other countries as well, but there's a difference between federal laws, state laws, and municipal or town laws or county laws, right? There, there was supposed to be that distinction between different levels of government in order to address problems as they affect people in very, very different ways. And so you, you do have that to a point. One of the concerns that I have is the number of people from urban areas that get elected to state-level office who then think that, and, and this is, this actually always comes up with things like um, laws governing uh, animal, uh, animal cruelty, because <clears throat> they will try to address a problem at a local municipality saying like, oh, well, this, this person keeps leaving their dog out at night and freezing temperatures and the whole deal. And so they'll try to pass a statewide law that governs this. Well, we have working dogs in the country where, you know, being outside is, is not only not a big deal, it's 
the way they operate. Well, they're bred for it and they're fur, they prefer it. Yeah. They prefer to be outside. And so a lot of times we have to, we have to explain culturally that, okay, we, we get what you're trying to get at. Nobody likes animal cruelty, but the law that you are writing is going to cover a whole lot of things that don't fall within cruelty. In, in fact, you're, you're actually eliminating certain, you know, practices that have been going on for, you know, century, if not millennia. And, and sometimes we're, we're able to convince them of that and sometimes we're not. But to your point, that's one of the reasons why I, I know one of the questions that I ask when I look at laws is, is this an appropriate level for the state or, or is the state the appropriate level of government to be dealing with this problem? Because now we're going to pass a law that affects over 8 million Virginians when in reality, this is probably just a you problem, right? Go deal with it in your county or your jurisdiction. Great question from Ben White here. Thanks for the super chat. He says, I've heard this defense of leftist cities. Living in urban areas makes it difficult to ignore the suffering of others. I'd appreciate your response. That, I, I think that's a I think that's a, a good question, you know, to ignore the suffering of others. However, here's what I would say. It, if <clears throat> it, it is one thing to say, I want to, you know, obviously if you're exposed to someone suffering, um, and, and you should, you should have a, a visceral reaction to that. You should have a reaction to that based off of, you know, just being a decent human being to, to want to alleviate that suffering. Here's the problem that I, I would say with that. I don't know that the cities do the best job of actually alleviating human suffering. Now they perpetuate it. When, when I, when I, well, I won't even go that far. I'll just say this much. I, I see a lot more people in New York city that are willing to walk past, you know, 40 homeless people sitting in the room than I would in an, in a rural area. Um, I, I feel like actually there's a lot closer connections in a lot of rural areas and traditions where families and individuals and churches take it upon themselves to deal with certain issues. It's, it's not assumed that it will just be delegated to government. One of the biggest problems that I have with the way that large urban areas deal with issues like poverty or human suffering is it seems like there's predominantly an assumption that that's what I pay taxes for. Mm -hmm. And again, you can, you can understand that on some level because when you've got 7 million people packed into a few square miles and, and you're paying, you know, 40% of your, your labor taxes, there's a reasonable expectation at some point that that's what deals with that. The, the thing that I would ask back is, and are you happy with the results? Because I, I think we, we've discussed this before in a why minute where we had, we said, why are people leaving these urban areas and moving to, you know, Texas or Florida or Tennessee? Why are they moving out of these areas? And we came to the conclusion it wasn't just because they were paying higher taxes. It was because they were paying higher taxes ostensibly to provide for public services, clean drinking water, safe streets, nice parks, good schools. And what they were finding out was is, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City were taxing the living crap out of them, but then weren't making good on their promise to provide safe streets, clean drinking water, good schools. And then lo and behold, they moved to a, a state or maybe a municipality with a very different viewpoint on these things. They paid lower taxes, but got better services. And so the, the, the thing that I would argue is that it's all fine and good to say, yes, I'm packed into such conditions where I see human suffering and I can't ignore it. The problem is, is they are ignoring it or, oh, or they're yeah. just assuming that, well, I pay taxes. The government, you know, is supposed to take care of this. And if the government isn't, well, then clearly I need to elect someone different. And as opposed to saying, is there something else that I can do for this person? But when we, when we lose that human connection within a close knit community, um, I, I, I don't know that the evidence is that government does a good job of actually providing for people that are suffering. In fact, I think to your point, Tina, I think they're actually perpetuated in many cases. Yeah. They're incentivizing the, activity to continue. 
Well, and, and I'll tell you one, one of the, <clears throat> one of the other, the, the biggest things, if you, if you are concerned about, you know, uh, alleviating, you know, human suffering, one of the best ways that you can do that is actually through good ranchers, because I know, I know personally, um, you know, when I, when I don't have, uh, when I, when I can't put good quality steaks and poultry and everything like that on the table, like I, I feel bad. I feel bad. And now Good Ranchers provides a mechanism, a mechanism for me to be able to get the best, the absolute best in steak and poultry and wild caught seafood and to be able to not only provide for my own family, but to also be able to share this with the people in the community that I love best. And now with the deals that they're actually providing right now, you get $25 off your order. You get 20, you get free shipping. And then if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, you're now going to get all of that delivered to your door on a schedule that you pick. Could be monthly, could be every couple of months. But if you sign up for one of those subscriptions, every time that order comes, you're also going to get an additional two pounds of ground beef free with that order. And I'm, I'm just telling you right now, that's uh, that's pretty significant. That's I just want to point out that I made buffalo chicken mac last week. Yeah, Nick said it was the best meal I've ever cooked yeah. and I used Good Rancher's chicken in it. Nick, he I've, did. I've also got some bad news. What? That deal ends on Friday. Ooh. On October 6th. You gotta act now. You gotta act now. There'll be a, there'll be something else, but this deal with free ground yeah. beef for two years locking in your price doesn't last well, forever. And, and, I, and I'll tell you I'll tell you right now, there's two reasons to do this. I'm gonna give you two reasons to do this, right? One reason is it, it really is just an absolutely quality product from you know American ranchers. Uh, it's a great way to support for those of you in urban areas that you want to look a way to support yeah. your your rural, you know, brothers and sisters. Well, hey, they you're gonna support them by buying quality meat produced there in that rural community, and they're going to support you by delivering it directly to your door in the city. So that is a win-win for the urban-rural divide, right? Real, um, real quick, we have links in the description for our audio folks. Make sure you use the link in the description to use promo code Nick because that will let Good Ranchers know that we sent you. Yeah. And then the other part of that, here's the other, I said two reasons. First reason is this is a great way to, you know, again, mutually beneficial transactions. Second reason is they support the show. Yep. And so if you're looking for a way, if you said, you know what, I want to, I want to support this show, but I also love steak. Well, you we've, can, you can eat you, steak. You can and support both. the in show. Fact, go make, in fact, go order good ranchers, get a good steak and then eat the steak while watching the show. That's like the best of both worlds. All right. <laughs> so, so we got the greater population. We got the, let's, let's look at some of the cultural reasons. I think that was a, a mm -hmm. cultural reason, you know, not being able to ignore suffering. Um, yeah, how much of this do you think is? Because um, I was sitting there listening to to you and Tina back and forth on this, and and something that that I I've been thinking about a lot lately on this topic is how much of this is that cities are producing left wing progressive you know woke liberals whatever you want to call them um, you know people on the left either culturally or or economically versus how much is it that cities attract those type of people? I, I think that's a good question. I mean, if you look at if you look at, I mean, not that all universities are in, in high density urban areas, but they, they tend to be cities and towns tend to grow up around those, those universities. And, and we know that the universities at this point are, are overwhelmingly left wing. Um, now I will say this, Thomas Sowell actually makes a really good argument for why 
urban centers and the sort of trade and the sort of exposure to new ideas is, is actually a very, very positive and beneficial thing. Like that's one of the things I want to point out here is like, we're not saying cities automatically bad. Like there, there's the exposure to new ideas can be a good thing. The problem is, is that when people can't make healthy distinctions between, Oh, that's a really good idea. And Oh, that's a really horrible idea. And, and I think that's the part that we're running into right now is that it almost seems like there, there isn't, any inoculation from it's just oh it's a new idea it must be it good it must be good yeah you can go outside and start eating grass and mooing like a cow that would be a change from your normal routine daily behavior i wouldn't necessarily recommend it yeah the, 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 this idea that this very infantile view of the world that pro progressives equal progress equals good yeah. conservatives just want to maintain the status quo and they don't realize that we could make things better and yeah. reactionaries are the bad guys that want to take us back to the 1950s when only white men had rights like like <laughs> this is a this is a narrative that's I, genuinely so many people on the left actually believe that that that's what these terms mean and it, it, it's absurd because progress is like fire you can be you can be you could be progressing towards Nazism. I don't think that that necessarily means that our friends on the left would be would be enthusiastic about that. So this idea that just change equals progress equals good. No, you, you need to understand what the change is. Thomas Sowell talks about this a lot when he's like, you know, the, the analogy of, of, you know, you don't rip rip the fence posts out of the ground without trying to realize first why they were placed there to begin with. And I, I, I do think that cities tend to be a hotbed for change and innovation and, and kind of testing the boundaries and trying new things, which is, which is good. You should, you should always, you know, be, be trying to experiment and, 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 you know, test those boundaries that that's how we've made, you know, major economic and technological breakthroughs. But again, that doesn't mean that every single new idea that, that comes along is necessarily better than than what we have. And you need a balance there. You, you, you need to respect tradition without being dogmatic about it, Yeah. right? But that also doesn't mean that anything that existed until five seconds before you came onto this planet is, you know, complete garbage that should be thrown out of the window. That mindset is, I think, incredibly self-destructive. And you're seeing this in many of these urban centers in the U.S. right now. Like, look at how you know, <laughs> look at how Minneapolis and Seattle and, and San Francisco's new experimentation with replacing police officers with, you know, <laughs> social workers. Yeah. Social workers <laughs> is going for them. Yeah. Like I also love to look at their environmental policy. <laughs> Every time we go to a big city and we see how much trash is everywhere yeah. and we just see like just it, it's such heavy consumption in the in the cities that I kind of get why they think the world is burning is because they're the ones burning it up and they want to blame cow flatulence in the country. Yeah. And they want to, they want to do this like HOA thing from afar and, and apply it to all the rural areas and the farmers. We, we had a funny, we had a funny incident in uh, the general assembly where all the people from Northern Virginia, they, they basically, there's a lot of concern over the Chesapeake Bay and making sure that the Chesapeake Bay, you know, is, is cleaned up and, and, and good. That's all fine. And it tends to be a lot of the legislation that we see coming from urban legislators is all focused around agriculture. Um, agriculture explains all the problems, right? You know, and, and again, I'm going to be a little bit hyperbolic, but that's how it feels a lot of times to those of us in the country. And then all of a sudden we started looking at the amount of fertilizer that gets used to keep their grass green in Northern Virginia. And it's like the fertilizer being used in the country is being used so you have food to eat. 
right? The fertilizer you're using to keep your lawn green is because you think it looks pretty. And, and oh, by the way, if you want to talk about runoff, where do you think all that fertilizer, when you over-fertilize your grass in, in an urban population, and it goes straight into the gutters, then straight into the sewer systems, then straight into the Chesapeake? It was really funny. I think it was, I, I think it was, it was either Arlington or Alexandria had a real problem where they were basically dropping raw sewage into the Chesapeake without going through the necessary, you know, filtration systems and everything else. And um, they had, they were given like three years to fix it. And they came down and the same people, right, that were, were lecturing all of us in the country about how much fertilizer we use, you know, for our crops and everything else, were, were not fixing their sewage problem. And then they were like, well, we need another three years. And we're like, yeah, no, you don't get it. It's not like you don't have the money. You do have the money, but you want to spend the money on all these other little projects instead of the one this. And then you want to come down here and you want to lecture us on, on our agricultural, you know, practices. So, no, you can fix your problem. And, and it was this, and it was this funny moment where I can't remember who it was, but one of the delegates got up and said, you know, I, I certainly sympathize with our neighbors to the North and the problem that they're having and fixing this very difficult and complex problem. But you know what? The environment is a real concern. And as, as our colleagues have reminded us daily that the, the world is burning or the world is having problems, we think it's important that you solve this problem now. And, and it was ju just the hypocrisy, the arrogant hypocrisy well, of people it? that are constantly lecturing those of us in rural areas about this. Yeah, you see it everywhere. I, Nick and I were in a big city recently and we were both laughing because there was there's trash everywhere. And it there were signs saying you can't park here from this time to this time for street cleaning. And we looked around and thought, there is no way this street has been cleaned in the past several months. There is no way. And really what you're looking at is just a revenue booster. They want to be able to fine you for parking there during quote street cleaning time, even if they don't ever clean the street. I mean, I, maybe they clean it. I don't know. Maybe it just gets dirty that quick again, which is pretty sad. Yeah, which tells sure. you everything you need to know yeah. about people in the big city. Yeah. All right, real quick. Got a few super chats to get to. This one's from Gun Griffin. Sir, I am blackpilled. We need a peaceful national divorce or a violent conflict, but how do we do that when the cities are left and the rural is right? So, I promise this is not my burner account. <laughs> so Gun Griffin, you and Christian need to talk. Uh, well, here, here's what I'll say. Look, I, I don't, I personally, I don't want national divorce. I don't, I certainly don't want a violent conflict because I've been involved in violent conflicts and they're, they're pretty horrendous. Um, but here's what I will say. We, we did a, we did two episodes um, on national divorce. And one of the things we talked about was that this is very different from the last time that the United States had any sort of major conflict that could have potentially resulted in, in a splitting or a separation uh, between states. And one of the things that we did talk about was that this isn't a state versus state as much as it is urban versus rural. And that creates a very, very different dynamic. Now, as, as speaking as someone that, again, doesn't want to see a national divorce, doesn't want to see violent conflict, but does want to see, you know, greater respect for the differences between people, both across states and within urban rural divides. I, I really think that a, a newfound respect for federalism is absolutely key to that. Um, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to look at someone that has very different views than me and say, look, if, if you, and if you're living in a city where 75% of the people think the way you do, and you want to govern that city in certain ways, provided that you're not violating certain essential civil liberties, which are supposed to protect all Americans. I get that. I get that because I have the ability to not live in that environment. 
I want to live in an environment that is more rural, that, that does put a greater emphasis on both individual liberty and personal responsibility. I don't, I don't want to live in an environment where every time you make a mistake, the government's supposed to be there to pick you up because every time they do that, the only way they can do that is by either taking away individual choices or stealing from other people in order to redistribute. So I don't want that. I'm willing to accept the personal responsibility that comes with individual liberty. Um, but I, I think one of the ways that we do it, and, and this is a, a, big thing for me over and over again is it's education, education, education. Um, right now, if, if kids are going into an educational environment where they're largely being taught that, you know, democracy and government is the way that we solve problems, well, then they're going to grow up with the expectation that political activism, running for office, writing new laws, that's the way we solve issues. And and clearly, if a law is a good thing, well, then shouldn't it apply to all 330 million Americans? The answer is no, not necessarily. And so you you need a you need a revolution within the way that we, we teach our children about the roles the government's supposed to play and that they are limited and that the reason why they're limited is because when the government makes a mistake, Millions of people can be adversely affected. And so we need to have a little bit of humility with respect to what we expect out of government functions and in the appropriate levels of government. I'm very skeptical that our current public schools model is set up to be able to do that. And so one of the things I really encourage parents to do is to take a very close look at how your child is being educated. And regardless of what you choose, I'm not here to tell you what to do. We chose homeschool and, it, and it's one that I would highly recommend. But if you choose to send your pub, your kids to public school, you're going to have to play an even larger role in, in understanding what they're being taught and being willing to challenge certain presuppositions that come out of a government managed education. Because if we can get to a point, and that's what I hope, I, I want to save the republic. I think the only way to get there is to actually raise a generation of kids which properly understand the role of government as well as the various levels and 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 have some respect for the fact that you're not going to fix every problem through a law, regulation, rule, fine, fee, or tax. Um, and, and one of the greatest things that sometimes you can you can do to address a problem is not write a law, but start a business or, or find some, you know, invent something, find some sort of new innovation on how to do something or a tool to be used. And if we can start getting kids focused more on what are the peaceful ways that, that we address challenges as opposed to the coercive ways, because government is a coercive way, then I, I think there's still hope to save this and, and prevent us from getting to that point. Uh, but that's that's my take. I know that doesn't perfectly answer your question, but I think in part that's because we're kind of looking for we're too, I'm not totally black pilled yet. I'm going to read the next two off together so we can get moving forward. This one's from Christian Burton. Bandwagon effect in more populous areas. People naturally follow the crowd. Accelerated in cities versus rural areas where there is more free thinking. And real quick, let me get to the y'all want to react to that first. Yeah. I don't actually okay. think that there's more free thinking in rural areas than urban areas. I, I don't I don't necessarily um, I, I think what there is in more rural areas is less expectation for somebody else to do something on your behalf or for you. I think I think there's more what we would call what de Tocqueville and others might have referred to as like rugged individualism, which is the idea that I'm first responsible for my own well-being um, mm -hmm. because there's there, because there's less people, there's less room for dependence on other people. Um but I don't think that necessarily equates to more free thinking. It, I think there's, I think there's a higher propensity to assume personal responsibility for your actions, for your life and for your well-being in the rural areas. But that doesn't necessarily mean exposure to new ideas or acceptance of new ideas. Um, and, and this, again, this is something that Thomas Sowell talks a lot about. I, I need to get that book. I think it's called uh, Cult, conquest and cultures. Um, 
so again, I, I want to give I want to give urban areas their due, and, and I want to give the classical understanding of liberalism its due when it comes to understanding and appreciating exposure to new ideas. The the more conservative mindset toward new ideas is skepticism. So when when you look at personality traits, the people that tend to be more open to new ideas. Um, are, are a lot of times ones that will be very comfortable with innovation and very comfortable with disruptive technology, whereas the more conservative approach to some of that tends to be more skeptical of it. That doesn't mean they can't accept it or embrace it or, or thrive under it. It's just it just means that when you feel like when you take more personal responsibility for your well being, anything that comes in and challenges the order for which you are utilizing to take care of yourself and your family, you're going to view with a certain degree of healthy skepticism. And, and where this comes into play, where, where this is beneficial is when the open mindset that is willing to address new ideas is also open to the conservative mindset, which says, okay, some new ideas are good and some will kill you. And, and when you have that merging of people that are able to work together, and you see this sometimes in couples too, where they say opposites attract, you'll have one, one person of the relationship that wants to go out and try new ideas. And one person that's like, okay, but we need to be a little bit careful on how we do this. And when that syncs up and you achieve this kind of equilibrium within society, that can actually be incredibly positive for everyone involved. But when you do get to this point where, again, people are willing to... It, it, you move toward um, either stagnation where it's like, we're not trying anything. This has worked forever and it's going to work, you know, go into the future. You don't want stagnation, but you also don't want this kind of um, unmoored, you know, acceptance of any new idea that comes across to, to Christian's point earlier about like, Oh, this is new. It must be good. It must be progress. It's, it's more um, a, a good way to look at it is the classic divide between conscientiousness and openness. Yeah. Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot that, People on the left um, score much higher in openness and people on the right tend to score much higher in conscientiousness. And it's not that conscientiousness or openness are, are one is good and one is bad. They're, yeah. they're actually both good and they can both be destructive. Yeah. It depends on, on how they're applied. I mean, conscientiousness is just it, it's it's self-disciplined. It's somebody who who, you know, in many respects has a, um, you know, can 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 plan for the future. Um, again, it gets into more of that rugged and rugged individualism. Those are inherently more conservative leaning traits, whereas openness is, is in many respects, the thing that drives a lot of innovation. Um, yeah. this is also like a very common trait that you see in people who are active in like the arts or entertainment by this is part of the reason why you see things like Hollywood and Silicon Valley and wall street tend to be very on the left and society tends to work best when people who are high in conscientiousness and people who are high in openness work together. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're seeing a breakdown in that where people who are high in, in one of these traits view each other as enemies. And I think that we've talked about many topics before on this show of why that's the case. And it's not entirely unwarranted as on, on some of these, these cultural divides. But when you look at the geographic divides, we actually have some maps that I wanted to, to walk us through that we pulled up. I'm going to try to explain what they are. We, we but got a couple. I think before we, have we do that, we got a couple more, more yeah. super chats. Yeah. <laughs> let me let me get to this one real quick. If there, 
we're, we're doing our best to get to all these super chats, but we do have to move forward with the episodes. We might save some towards the end. This one's from Dylan Doyle. I have noticed you guys mentioned things uh, the government does that the churches used to or could do. Have you considered doing an episode on the meaning or concept of ch- separation of church and state? That, That's a good idea. No, it, it is good. We, we did one. Uh, we did an episode once on uh, non-government solutions to government problems. <laughs> um and, and yeah, the separation of church and state and, and the concept behind it and, and what was really originally um, meant by this, because again, John, John Adams, who is not what you would consider to be like an evangelical Christian, but John Adams said like our constitution is written for a religious and moral people and is totally unsuited to any other. The, the other thing too is um, the way I've described this before when I've talked to people about is the idea of provinces. So you have the province of the individual, you have the province of the family, you have the province of the church or the community a civic organization for those of you who are not religious. And then you have the, the province of government and these things tend to work when everybody respects the roles and the duties and responsibilities. Uh, and, and you might even say the privileges within those various provinces and they don't try to, you know, consume or take over other ones. And, and the biggest issue that I have right now is I feel like the government is constantly intervening in the province of the individual, the family, the church, the civic organization. And, and that's in part because of the people that believe that the government is the individual, the family, the church. Um, I, I, I find it fascinating that some of the people that seem to be in, in the greatest opposition to the church or, or advocate for separation of, of church and state also seem to be the ones that want the government to play an almost godlike role in all of our lives. And, and that, that is terrifying to me because I, I've, again, I've, I've been in elected office for eight years and I, I've served with a lot of people that I disagree with who, you know, I, I would still say are, um, you know, competent people when it comes to running their own life. But sometimes what they do is they take the competence associated with their ability to run their lives and then assume that that gives them the ability to run other people's lives, especially people that they feel are, um, you know, maybe less wealthy or less competent professionally. They will come to the conclusion that, oh, well, you're less competent professionally. I'm more competent professionally. Therefore, I'm going to pass laws that assist you. And now all of a sudden, again, they're, they're getting into a realm for which they have they no special based on expertise. skin color as well. Well, they have no special expertise. They have no special insight into that person's individual problems or, or, or objectives. And, and it's just really what a lot of this comes down to honestly is humility. If, if you approach a lot of this from, from a more humble standpoint of saying, I, I know what works for me and I know what works for my family and I know what works in this particular area. And so I want to be able to pursue those things and I want to be free to pursue those things. However, I don't know what works best for you or your family. And so I'm not going to attempt to dictate that what works for me will work for you. Now, there's certain foundational principles, I think, that work for everybody, right? You know, you know, when possible, get married, stay married, have kids within wedlock, you know, you know, further your education to the point that's practical. When you get a job, be a good worker. When you're a boss, be a good boss. These are all things that, that are your fairly, kids out of public school. These, these are all <laughs> these are all things that are fairly universal. But when it comes to your individual objectives or talents or, or goals for your life to, to try to manipulate things in such a way that's going to affect millions of people, because I think I know best is in my mind, an incredibly arrogant way to address these problems. All right. Do we have a couple more super chats before we get to the next Let's one? Let's get moving forward. Okay. So Bottom line, let me let me kind of recap what we did here. We've established that the urban-rural divide is is fairly universal within developed countries. It's not a hard and fast rule that applies 100% of the time, but it's fairly universal. We've also talked about what are some of the practical and moral reasons why a large urban center or population might 
tend toward left of center or more government intervention. Obviously, the more people you have in a concentrated space, the more desire for rules or regulations or an understanding of those rules might might transpire. We could all kind of understand that. From a from a cultural standpoint, the more people you have living in a in a close-in space with different ideas, different backgrounds, different approaches to problems, obviously is going to lead to greater exposure to those ideas and perhaps less concern for how they're going to impact the the overall society from which you're living. By the same token, we've also addressed that, you know, this this absurd argument that diversity is our strength. Diversity is your strength when you actually have common goals and certain cultural markers which actually unite people. Um, if you don't have the, those foundational principles by which everyone lives, certain moral precepts, certain um, understanding or practices with respect to how rules are created, certain social norms, which everyone kind of understands and agrees with. If you don't have that, diversity is not your strength. Diversity is the thing that will be used to butcher one another. And, and it's like, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing this like flippant statement that, oh, well, if, if we're, if we're diverse, we must be strong. Now I will say this diversity can add a great deal of strength to any society. Because when you do have diverse skill sets, when you have diverse um, perspectives, when you have uh, uh, diverse experiences, when you have diverse ways of uh, solving a problem, all of those can be beneficial if you agree on certain moral preconditions that, okay, and we're not going to use our various strengths to manipulate, exploit, and conquer somebody else and take their stuff. You know, and we, we have a certain system that we use in order to determine what the rules are going to be for which we get to participate, but no, nobody gets to come in and dominate and, and hurt somebody else. Like if we can, if we can yeah. agree on certain principles and we can agree on certain end states, well then yes, a diversity of, of opinions can be very, very valuable and a diversity of experience can be very, very valuable. But if you don't have some agreement on the foundations and some agreement on where you're going the diversity will be used to tear each other apart, not build each other up. And so that's an important distinction. The last point is that cities potentially play just as great a role of producing leftists or liberals or, yeah. or people on the political left as it does attracting those type of people. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, when, when you piece all of those things together, this you know desire need for more services, the multicultural aspect, and then the, the magnet slash generating effect that cities have when it comes to producing and attracting people on the left, I think that that in many respects that goes to explain the the left right urban political divide. But mm -hmm. it's worth noting that we live in in very interesting times in terms of where we are in terms of political geography right now in the West. And I say the West on purpose because I'm not just speaking of the United States. I'm also speaking of Canada. I'm speaking of our friends across the pond in the UK. You're also seeing the same thing play out in France, Germany, Hungary. Um, it, it, the divide is probably more stark now than it ever has been. And to, to illustrate that, um, we've got some maps that I think we want to go through here of some individual states. And then we've got a, a larger map of the entire country. And then that yeah. will lead us into the third part of this episode where we talk about is the urban rural political divide starting to change in some ways? Because yeah. there's actually some evidence that it's not as static as you might think it is. Yeah. So we, we've talked again, we've, we've laid out everything else. This next part is the part that blew my mind. When, when we started digging into the data, we saw stuff here that I did not, like I had no idea was taking place, which was kind of shocking to me because I, I've looked at this from a political standpoint for years and, and we've just taken certain things um, 
you know, as, as foregone conclusions. And all of a sudden you, you brought up, you're like, Nick, you need to look at Miami. You need to look at Dallas. You need to look at New York city. So what we've, what we've got here for our audio listeners is, is we've got a, uh, a very detailed precinct map of Florida. And what we're, what we're doing is now, as you look at this, it looks exactly how you would expect it to look. The urban centers are very blue. The rural areas are, are very red, but are, are we going to look at Miami first? Yeah, if you want to. So like I said, this is, um, like you said, this is a map of Florida in 2020. This is the precinct map from the 2020 election. This is South Florida that we're going to zoom in on. I'm, I'm going to try to explain this for our audio listeners because we're looking at a map right now. So yeah. try to visualize South Florida. You've got um, Fort Lauderdale to the north. You've got West Palm Beach, where my family actually lives, even further north of that. And then to the south of those two urban centers, you've got Miami itself. Uh, it's one massive metro area. South Florida has like 6 million people or something like that. It's a very, very large metro area. One continuous strip. And what you see when you zoom in on Miami-Dade County is a very stark urban, urban divide yeah. between the black parts of Miami and the Cuban and other Hispanic parts of Miami. The black parts of Miami obviously are very overwhelmingly Democrat. They voted, you know, 80, 90 percent for Joe Biden. But the Cuban parts voted like 60 or 70 percent for Donald Trump. And that might not be terribly surprising because Cubans historically have been more conservative. In fact, in many respects, more conservative than even white Americans. And so it might not be terribly surprising that, oh, well, you know, this might be a unique outlier in the sense that that, you know, there's this this. Um, racial minority in South Florida that's very far on the right, and so they would pull Miami to the left. Well, but keep in mind a big a big part of this is is the number of Cubans that escaped Castro settled in Florida. Mm-hmm. There, there's a there's a very like distinct Cuban community within in South Florida, um, and and keep in mind this is not something. You know, o- over time, you will see generations of people that have escaped socialism, escaped communism, and they are very, very like anti-communist, uh, very, very anti-left. Their kids a little bit less so, their mm-hmm. grandkids a little bit less so. But you, so you, you've inter- actually you've actually seen this consistency within the Cuban community in in Florida. I think in part because there's still family in Cuba, there's still people regularly escaping Cuba. Cuba still operates as a as a, a very impoverished, very oppressive uh, communist in- environment. Um, and, and so there, there's almost like this regular reminder 90 miles away um, that this is still a thing and this is so still a problem. So there was, but Hamilton, if you actually go to this um, wheel here, I want to show you something that, that'll real, I mean, just shock you. Click on this, President 2020, and then change this to President 2016, and then click Apply, and then click Apply down here. This is the Miami metro area in 2016 between Trump and Hillary Clinton. Mm. Miami-Dade County, in fact, I'm going to look it up right now. Take a guess how Miami-Dade County voted for, you don't necessarily need to, um, you know, scream it. But um, if if you take a guess about how Miami-Dade County voted in 2016 versus how it voted in 2020, you'll get an idea of where we're going with this episode. In 2016, Miami-Dade voted 63-33 for Hillary Clinton, two to one yeah. for the Democrats. And, and when you look at the map here, you see, again, the black part's still very, very blue, but the Cuban part is only mildly red. Yeah. Like like Hillary blew Trump out of the water in, in Miami-Dade Miami. County. Highest percent of the vote of any Democrat to run for the presidency in this county since LBJ in 1964. And then in 2020, go back to the 2020 map. In 2020... 
Miami Dade went from 63-33 for for the Democrats to 53-45 yeah. for the Democrats. Trump went from losing it two to one to losing it by seven points. Yeah, that's huge. When you look at the swing, here's where it gets insane. Actually, a better way to look at it would actually be the New York Times precinct map that we have. Um, so Hamilton, if you click on this and then just keyword search for Miami, I'm going to try to explain this for our audio listeners because this is just incredible. So again, this is the 2020 results that you're just looking at straight up. And Hamilton, if you zoom out just a little bit to like show the, the Miami metro area in general, again, this is the map that we're looking at here is Miami in 2020. So again, Hillary won it, or sorry, Joe Biden won it by like seven points. But when you look at the shift from where it voted in 2016 to where it voted in 2020, Hamilton, if you click on change from 2016, this This is what's crazy. Just zoom out. There there was, there was only one precinct in, um, there was only one precinct in like downtown Miami uh, or maybe three that got more blue. Like every other pre, every single one got more red. Now, now go ahead and hover over just any one of those precincts, like toward the thirty-eight points. Okay, so no, no, go go more toward the right, like right where it says Miami. Okay, so <clears throat> look at that. This this is what's crazy. Like we're we're talking about downtown Miami here, and you know Trump won fifty-two percent of it, where he he had gotten forty-eight percent before, or he'd got um thirty percent before, and then fifty-two percent in twenty twenty. This precinct, he lost sixty-seven thirty in twenty sixteen, yeah. only to win it fifty-two forty-eight. So it's a forty-one a forty-one point. point shift to the right. Wow. Yeah, scroll wow. now. I want you to scroll up just a little bit. Scroll, keep going up just a little bit, a little bit. Right, right around there. Right around there. This is this is the part that eludes people. Clinton won this precinct. By 95% in 2016, 95% of the vote went to, to Clinton, 4% for Trump. In 2020, it was 89%, 10%. Now, a lot of people look at it like, who cares? Who cares that he, he got 10% of the vote as, as opposed to 4% of the vote in that precinct? I'll tell you who cares, people running for governor. People running for statewide office. When when you see a twelve to thirteen point shift within an urban precinct, yeah, it's not going to affect the congressional representation of that district. But that biggest shift in an area shows that something is happening. Something is happening in in what is still a deep blue area. We're not claiming otherwise, but that's massive. And to give our audio and YouTube listeners an idea of what we're talking about here, there ain't a lot of rural countryside in Miami-Dade County. I was born in Miami-Dade County, um, lived there in the 90s. I, it, I, even though I haven't lived there in over 20 years, I've gone back. Mo- I've, I've visited Miami more than any place on earth other than Culpeper where I live. Um, I know the place very, very well. My, both my parents lived in Miami in the 80s and 90s as well. And Hialeah, Kendall, Homestead, Miami Beach, all of none of that is countryside. No. All of that is suburban at best in terms of low density or it's straight up urban high rise apartments. Miami's known for for going through what's called Manhattanization. It actually has the second highest number of skyscrapers of any city in the U.S. behind New York City. Mm-hmm. So this is a, an incredibly dense urban, not rural, not even suburban area like this is is metro as it gets. Yeah. And you're talking about precincts in an urban environment, no countryside, no cows, none of that stuff, where 
like you're seeing shifts that are like 20, 30, 40 points to the right. And even on the low end, 10, 15 point shift to the right. Universally, there's almost not a single patch of land in this county that shifted to the left from 2016 to 2020. And by the way, this is an extreme version but it's actually not as much of an outlier as you might think. Well, and this is, so a lot of people are going to watch this too and be like, okay, but that's Florida. And Florida's witnessed a, a large cultural shift. It's had an influx of population from, um, from areas that where people were not just leaving New York to get to warm weather. They were actually leaving for ideological reasons. It wasn't just sunny beaches and, and nice weather. Yeah. A lot of them were leaving because of mask mandates and vaccine mandates yeah. and things like that. So, so there, there's, so people are probably going to think, okay, but this is Florida. We all know that Florida has witnessed kind of an ideological shift in, in recent history. And you can check out the number of reasons. Do you want to go, where do you want to go next? It's your show, Nick. You pick. Let, let's go. Let's stay on the this map if we can, because I think this is just easier to navigate and it shows what we're looking for. Let's go up to New York, <laughs> because I, I want to pick. I want to pick a population that. Wait, bef Hamilton. Before you type it in, you need to switch it back to 2020. Before oh, yeah, you yeah. type it in, because we don't want to spoil things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 2020 results in New York City and deep and, blue city. Yeah, and we we. I mean, nobody is shocked by the fact that you know. Biden just crushed it in New York City, right? Nobody's shocked, shocked by this fact. Um, there, there's only one area in, in this kind of portion of New York that, that votes conservative. And it's that little play. What is that? Just to the north uh, Actually, west of Brooklyn? Actually, Hamilton, if you scroll out, you're going to need to do this a lot when you search in these cities, by the way. This is this is all of New York. You see Staten Island is Republican. Yeah. Staten Island did actually vote for Trump narrowly. Yeah. And you see the southern part of, um, what is that, Queens? Um, it's either Queens or Brooklyn. I I'm, I'm getting my, my New York geography mixed up here. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, that's Brooklyn because yeah. Queens is to the North. Yeah. The Southern part of Brooklyn, which is actually like the heavily Jewish part. <laughs> you're, you're seeing a lot of like Orthodox Jews in, yeah. in New York that are like realizing that the left is, is ideologically heavily against them. Yeah. And also they were upset about a lot of the COVID restrictions as well and stuff like that. So, um, Southern part of, um, Southern, southern part of Brooklyn as well is heavily Republican, but they're overwhelmed by the rest of the borough. So so Brooklyn as a whole is still overwhelmingly on the left. So with the exception of Staten Island, every every borough in New York City is overwhelmingly, not even mildly, overwhelmingly yeah. Democrat. Yeah. So so that's what that's what you're looking at. Not a bit not a big shock there. Um let's look at the change from twenty sixteen because this is fascinating to me. All right, so what you just saw, um, if for those of you who are listening, is New York just turned red. Now, understand what I mean by this. This doesn't mean that, oh my gosh, New York voted overwhelmingly Republican. What you're looking at is the shift between how precincts voted in 2016 versus how they voted in 2020. So they still voted Democrat, still voted overwhelmingly Democrat. The difference is, is that, even though they were overwhelmingly the shift, there was a far greater push to the right. So uh, Hamilton, go up into the the area just north of New York, a little bit to the right. We're staying on kind of the, yeah. There, go up, go up a little bit north there. North this is this is this is the Bronx. Okay, now here's what you need to look at. Like in the Bronx, heavily liberal, right? Like Clinton won these areas. Go ahead and stop. Uh, you know, Clinton won. You know, th this precinct that we're looking at right now in the Bronx by 94 percent. 
All right, Trump only got 5% in this area of the Bronx in 2016. In 2020, he got 17%. All right, go a little bit, little bit lower. I just want to do another one. Okay, stop. Okay, here's another one. In the Bronx, Clinton got 95% in 2016. Trump got four. In, in 2020, Clinton got 89%. Donald Trump got 10. That's a 12-point jump from 2016 to 2020. Here's the interesting part. And, and Christian, you, you, you do this because you're, you're the one that did all the, the work on discovering this. But out of all the boroughs, you're right, all, all the boroughs that are, are generally associated with heavier minority populations, what we see is roughly a 10 to 20% per precinct jump from 2016 to 2020. Still means the Democrat wins overwhelmingly, but that's a massive transition. What was the one borough where we didn't see that sort of transition? Manhattan. Are you telling me that the, 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 the one borough that is known for like, you know, rich white, you know, that's the borough, the richest and whitest part of New York city. So it's the rich one percenters did not shift to the right. And, and you see it, Hamilton, if you, if you move your, scroll down your, your mouse away, if, when you look at the map, yeah. So what you see is Staten Island basically stayed the same more or less um you see that queens and brooklyn just massive shifts to the right the bronx an even greater shift to the right i mean the bronx were as democrat as they could get i mean obama got like i think over 90 percent of the vote in in the bronx so like they had maxed out there and and democrats are now on the decline in the bronx and when i say decline i mean that they're only winning 85 percent now or 80 percent now instead of 90 but you're seeing manhattan like hamilton if you scroll into manhattan What's incredible is that like east side of Manhattan, which is the the richest part of Manhattan, like the parts that are next to the East yeah. River, scroll up just a little bit. Side where we see like Central Park in the middle of it. Yeah. So yeah, stop right so there. There we go. What you're seeing with Manhattan is um that like, you know, the east side and like Greenwich Village and like, you know, Midtown, like like super wealthy. Super wealthy, very, very white. Those actually got bluer. Yeah. Like like some of the richest like these are some of the richest zip codes in America, basically. Like six, seven, you know, 10 point shift to the left. But then when you look at Chinatown in the south part of Manhattan, Hamilton, if you Scroll, if you go down. if you move your mouse to the south part, you see that like the ethnic minority part of of southern Manhattan, not the financial district, but instead like Chinatown and stuff like that, that got like 12, 13, 14 points to the right. And then if you go to Harlem, which is in the most northern part of of Manhattan. It's just across the um, uh, uh, the river from from the Bronx, like the most northern part of Manhattan. You're you're seeing like like huge huge shifts to the right, like yeah, like twenty eight points right there, 30, 30 points. Like, and so what you're seeing is that the what's funny is the less white and rich an urban place is, the more likely it is that it shifted to the right. There's a couple more examples of this that I want to walk you guys through. And and we don't even need to show the 2020 results unless you want to. Look up Los Angeles. Again, California, not a conservative, not a conservative and, state. But, by all. the way, if anybody wants to look at this data too, it's it's, it's actually NewYorkTimes.com. I, I will say this. I'm not a huge fan of the New York Times. I don't think anybody's no. confused by that. But when it comes to the the precinct level maps to do and the data-driven maps that they do, they've got some of the best. 
that, that are also very easy to use. There's other maps out there that are better, but just not easy. So this is Los Angeles 2020 results. And as you can imagine, just overwhelmingly for uh, Biden, except for a couple of areas, interestingly enough, in, in parts of Beverly Hills, West Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Um, Beverly Hills almost voted for Trump. Almost. Yeah, which is it was very nuts, close. Nuts. Um, but then you look at the, so what, what you see is deep blue in the, in the middle of, of the city, uh, Compton, Inglewood. Yeah. Inglewood, what, what, what a lot of people refer to as like South central Los Angeles. And then and downtown like LA is also very, very yeah. like, like Hamilton. If you scroll over where it says Los Angeles, like, I mean, you, you know, 40 points. For yeah. Biden. I mean, yeah. almost every precinct he's winning by 70% of the vote plus. So like overwhelmingly. But Hamilton Democrat. zoom out. So that way we just see Southern California in general, because I want to pull Orange County in there too. There, Okay. Maybe a little bit too much there. There you go. So this is basically the Southern California metro yeah. area. This is, this is like 10 to 15 million people because LA County, well, LA County actually has lost so many people now that it's dipped under 10 million. Um, yeah, L.A. County is like losing hemorrhaging people right now because California is in general. But L.A. County is still the largest county in America. There's more people that live in L.A. County than live in the entire Commonwealth of Virginia yeah. by two plus million. Yeah. But um, well, again, it might be a little bit under that now, yeah. but very, very densely populated urban center. When you look at the shift, though, from 2016, again, Trump lost California in a landslide yeah. both times. But when you look at the shift from 2016 to 2020, look at this. Go ahead. Yeah, massive. The biggest shift is in like downtown Los Angeles. Downtown Los Angeles and Santa Ana and Orange County. The bluest yeah. parts of LA and the bluest parts of Orange County and the bluest parts of San Bernardino got redder, whereas the historically Republican parts of the Suburbs, suburbs. The, the the orange curtain they called it yeah. the, the historically orange county used to be very conservative until 2016 when it voted for hillary clinton and by the way it voted for joe biden again in 2020 so orange county is no longer the conservative bastion that it historically was but what you're seeing is an interesting phenomenon where it's like newport beach and stuff like that which used to be the very conservative suburbs Z zoom in a little bit closer to right right there in between like right into los angeles zoom in right there keep zooming all right, right around there. Stop right there. Yeah, this this is the part where go ahead and go ahead and hover over some of the priests, those dark red precincts, right? Okay. So again, just to clarify, like Biden still won these, right? But the shift is like anywhere. Stop right there. Just stop. <laughs> just just stop, Hamilton. <laughs> All right. So poor Hamilton, man. He's got to work this mouse as he is. We're trying to like vector him in. I, I'm not the geography. We're, 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 yeah. <laughs> we're looking at this place where, again, in 2016, Clinton won it by 83%. In 2020, Biden only won it by 68. That is a 37-point jump for Donald Trump between 16 and 2020. Now it's now a lot of, again, I want to point something else out. A lot of people will look at this and be like, well, then how could he have possibly lost? I will only say the way he could have possibly lost is that even if you, California's electoral votes all went to whoever won the state overall. So even if, again, he's still losing badly. You know why he's these, still lost? Wait a second. Okay. He's still losing badly in these precincts, but the shift is significant. The shift is significant and it is happening primarily. And now there's another shift taking place. And this is the part that Christian has pointed out in his, in the donut theory mm -hmm. is that there's also a shift in the suburbs and it's moving against the conservatives it's moving left. And so this is why, like if you go to Huntington beach down there in the bottom right corner, or you go to like rolling Hills, like rolling Hills is like the richest part of Los Angeles other than Beverly Hills. Yeah. Historically Republican stronghold. 
and you're seeing a shift to the left yeah. in what what used to be like the last part of LA County that was very very Republican. And Rolling Hills is no I mean again in the 80s this the, the blue parts of this map you're seeing here in LA County voted for like 2 to 1 for Ronald Reagan in the yeah. 80s. And they got bluer in 2020 versus 2016. Yeah. The what's incredible is the red parts of this map. Like if I were to show you if I were to show you a precinct map of this part of the country in 1980 or 1984, the colors would be reversed. Yeah. Yeah. Where the deep red parts here, which shifted heavily to the right in 2016, would have been overwhelmingly on the left. They still are. Yeah. And the blue parts here that shifted to the left from 2016 voted overwhelmingly for Reagan in the 80s. I, yeah. I have a question because this is the nagging question that I get with this is we're looking at the shift, but we also highlighted the fact that they're hemorrhaging people. Yeah. And so what I wonder is how much of this can be attributed to migration and are there other areas that were historically red that are becoming more blue because of the migration of the people? So, yes, yeah. migration does affect this in both directions. Hamilton, if you switch back to 2020 results, you'll see what I mean about residual ancestral Republican support. You're going to want to scroll a little bit to the southwest here, Hamilton. There you go. Awesome. So, again, you see Rolling Hills is residual. Like, there's one precinct in Rolling Hills that, you know, still voted for Trump. Like, yeah. But overall, Rolling Hills is still more to the right than the rest of L.A. County. That's that whole ancestral, like, super rich suburban former Republican voters that voted for Reagan in the 80s, and they're now deserting the party. You're seeing the same thing in Huntington Beach and Garden Grove. Like, Garden Grove used to be very, very on the on the left. Huntington Beach used to be very much on the right. The coastal parts of of like like Newport Beach and Huntington Beach, those used to be the suburban conservative parts of of Orange County. And you see Trump did win Huntington Beach narrowly. If yeah. Hamilton, if you hover over any of the precincts in Huntington Beach that are red, you'll see that that, you know, Trump won. So that one Trump won overwhelmingly. But a lot of the other ones he won by, you know, only a handful, you know, Hamilton, not the ocean. You're going to want to scroll over, <laughs> over some actual ocean. precincts yeah, yeah. here. Any red precinct around Huntington Beach. Yeah, two oh. points, right? You know, four points. Like, yeah. like he's not winning them overwhelmingly. And this is a part of Orange County that voted overwhelmingly yeah. for Reagan. Overwhelming, like two to one. And then Garden Grove to the north, if you scroll into a little bit, just, just to the west of Santa Ana, you see Trump narrowly wins those by about the same margin that he wins by yeah. some of the ones in Huntington Beach. Garden Grove as a whole, I think, voted narrowly for Joe Biden. But it was very close, very competitive. When you look at the change from 2016, though, what you see is Huntington Beach got bluer and Garden Grove got yeah, redder. overwhelmingly redder. Yeah. Hover over any of those precincts in Orange County that are deep. Right. 44, 48, 60-point yeah. shift to the right. Yeah. By the way, these are precincts that are overwhelmingly Asian and Hispanic. Yeah. Almost no whites live there. Yeah. Overwhelming, like like tons of Vietnamese, tons of Chinese, and tons of, of Hispanic voters that live around here. Gar Garden Grove is 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 known for for having a lot of Asian voters. Huntington Beach is very white. Yeah. And if you scroll to the South Hamilton, you see that Huntington Beach shifted almost universally to the left, but yeah. not as much as, as Garden Grove shifted to the right. And so again, what you're seeing is these suburban white, the more white and the more suburban a precinct is, the more to the left it has shifted over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. The more racially diverse or less white and more urban 
a precinct is, the more to the right it is shifted. Yeah. And so you're actually seeing racial depolarization at the same time that you're seeing what I call the donut effect, where urban cores like downtown Los Angeles, like Santa Ana, like Garden Grove, like San Bernardino, like New York City, like downtown Miami, urban cores are getting redder and the ring around them, the suburbs around them that historically were deep red yeah. are getting bluer. And so if you zoom out Hamilton, what you're seeing take shape is a donut ring where, I mean, look at Orange County, for yeah. example. You see the urban core of Orange County is getting redder and the suburban ring around Orange County is getting bluer. That's what I call the donut effect. Yeah. Well, and and so and what we're still seeing, though, is in the United States is what this means is that. Again, the where you will see the impact for this will be not so much in the presidential election because that's affected by the electoral college. You're not going to see it as much in congressional races because the districts and the precincts are still overwhelmingly blue. Where you're going to see it start having an impact is in statewide races for places like attorney general, lieutenant governor, governor. That's the part where all of a sudden a 20 point shift. That's where where Lee Zeldin wins the election. You know, in the future because. Um, not because he won New York, but because New York shifted 10 to 15 points and that was enough to, to get him over, get him over the edge, yeah. provided that it's still enough to overcome what's, what's also the shift that's also taking place within the suburbs. And, and again, part of the thing that's interesting about this is that if you want to see a place, cause we're still a long way from like these urban centers you know, voting for, I mean, you, you, I, I'm old enough to remember when Giuliani won in, in New York city, you know, twice. Um, and, and we're going to get into a little bit on why, why we think that happened, but let's, let's shift over. Um, let's shift over to South Korea if we could, because this is a, this was an incredibly interesting race. Go, go, uh, yeah, right there. So what we're looking at right now for our audio listeners is, is a picture of, of South Korea. And, and there's two things that are kind of unusual. One, uh, Pusan, which is located in the Southeastern portion of the country is actually an urban center that has traditionally been more conservative. The Southwestern portion of Korea, even the rural areas are overwhelmingly liberal. Um, but what's fascinating is Seoul. So Seoul, Korea, oh, and, and it's also worth noting the rest of the rural part of South yeah, Korea is all conservative. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it's an interesting dynamic that you don't really see playing out in like places like the United States or other areas that there's a, a massive rural contingent that is overwhelmingly left wing. Um, but when you, when you look at the area around Seoul, that's the part that we're looking at and, and specifically downtown Seoul, didn't just have a shift to the right it's the reason why Seoul has, or it's the reason why Korea has a, a conservative um, uh, chief executive now because downtown Seoul voted overwhelmingly conservative. It, it didn't, it's not that Seoul, sh so we talked about shifts, right? Yeah. You know, New York City shifted to the right. LA but it's still overwhelmingly shifted liberal. to the right. Yeah, but the shift is going from 80% Democrat to 70% Democrat. Yeah. Still a big shift. That I mean, that, that's how Zeldin almost won the governorship in New York last year. Yeah. It, it, we might actually get into that a little bit more because New York actually shifted even more to the right from 2020 when Zeldin ran in 2022. Like there's signs that, for example, I told you this last night, fun fact. Gavin Newsom won in uh, last year his reelection in Florida uh, in, in California. California by a smaller margin than Ron DeSantis won in Florida. Yeah, which is nuts. Nobody would have predicted that. Nobody would have predicted that. And it's because of LA. Yeah. And but 
again, when we say that, what we're saying is these urban places are just getting less blue. They're still yeah. blue, in many cases, overwhelmingly blue, but they're not the 80, 90% Democrat that they were, you know, in, in the Obama era or so, in some cases in the, in the, you know, nineties or eighties. So let, let's look at South Korea primarily because we think South Korea could be again, not necessarily, but could be a bellwether for things to happen in the future because of the demographics of the vote as well. So again, for those of you watching, for those of you listening on audio, what you see around Seoul is just blue everywhere except for the city center. And that never happens. That never happens. You know what this looks like? This results map yeah. looks like the shift maps that yes. we were looking at in the yes. US. Yeah. But this is not a shift. This is the actual result. So yeah. what's incredible is that the conservative, the right-wing candidate for president it's not that he improved in Seoul. He improved in Seoul. Yeah. He flipped the city. Yeah. He won it outright. That yeah. This would be the equivalent of somebody running for president or governor or uh, some statewide office in New York State or California and winning yeah. Los imagine, Angeles. Imagine Donald Trump winning New York City. We can't even conceive of that, right? Let's look at let's let's dive into the demographics because and this then meanwhile is, the suburbs around Seoul yeah oh god overwhelmingly left wing this is this is the donut effect this is the donut this is like the best representation I've ever seen of the donut effect in general election results not like you said not just shift general election results and then you look at the demographics who voted which way by age and by sex and it's like holy crap so. If this is the part that'll blow your mind. Okay. For, for age, um, is this just, is this for all of Korea? Is this just for Seoul? This is all of Korea. Let, let's go to, let's go to Seoul first, because that's what we're talking so about. So this here. is the mayor election that was held the year before the presidential election. This yeah. was in many respects, the harbinger of what yeah. was to come. This is just in the city limits of Seoul itself. This was their mayor election in 2021. Yeah. So the part that probably won't surprise people as much is that 60 and older, very solidly voted conservative. And, and we see similar trends usually in the United States. Older people tend to vote, vote more conservative. But the, the, the third most or the second most after 60 and older, the, 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 the second most loyal voting demographic uh, for the conservatives was 18 to 29 year olds. 18 to 29 year olds. The next one after that was 30 to 39 year olds. In fact, there was only one age group that came out for the, the left and it was 40 to 49 year olds. And then you, you drop it down by, when by you break it down women. by gender. It's, it's incredible <laughs> when you drink it man, and here's what that means. Now by gender, 18 to 29 year olds, women, 44% of women voted for the liberal 40.9% of women voted for the conservative. But when you look at 80 to 29-year-old men, 72.5% of 18 to 29-year-old men voted for the conservative and only 22.2 for the liberal. That's massive. That's massive. When, when you break that down, there's only one other group. There's only one group that voted more conservative than 18 to 29-year-old men, and that's 60-year-old women. <laughs> That's the Their only grandmothers group. are That's super based. Group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, grandmas in Korea is super based, right? But every every other like this is this is nuts. The only other the two most liberal groups were eighteen to twenty nine year old women and forty to forty nine year old men. And by I say more liberal, I mean fifty one point three percent. You you don't you don't see the same the same shift. So it's it's just incredible. 
to witness what's going on there and to understand culturally what's been happening in Korea. And, and Christian, I'll let you explain this because I, I think you've done uh, the most research on it. But you, I mean, you had this. You had some of the stuff that you expect. You have a housing crisis within mm-hmm. Seoul. You you have a, a lot of kind of like diversity politics and and feminist politics, woke politics. But it's it's manifested itself a little bit different. So explain a little bit about what's going on in Seoul. So Seoul has, like many urban centers in the U.S., a massive housing crisis. By the way, Hamilton, I sent you a, a, a link to an image that I just want you to pull up, just because I, I want to show the audience something while we're while we're talking here. Um, it's just a it's just a photo, but I, I just j- just to get across how incredible this is for a second. Imagine 70 plus percent of 18 to 29 year old men who live here yeah. voting for the right wing candidate yeah. for mayor and then president. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about like a Mitt Romney version. No, uh, no, no, like no. The, the guys, the, the right in South Korea for those two elections nominated, like in, to be completely honest, like incredibly based people, like, <laughs> like, like very hardcore, like red pilled you know, type, type conservatives. And the reason why is because there is a massive backlash going on right now in South Korea against feminism. The South Korean government has decided to impose wokeism top down over the last like 10, 20 years. And in the West, wokeism kind of emerged bottom up. We've talked about this in many of our previous podcasts, you know, Gramsci's, you know, the march through the institutions that Duchke wrote about after, after Gramsci first talked about this in the 1930s and, and how, this is, it's not a conspiracy. It's actually an organic social movement. This, this whole woke thing, you can't say that it's this that did it. It's, it's an organic process. And we've also talked about how that's infiltrated all these things that we call the cathedral or the Leviathan. And so in many respects, this, this, the great awakening is, is a correct term to describe it because it was an organic process in South Korea. It wasn't necessarily an organic process so much as it was a top down process. The government took some of these Western woke ideas and tried to impose them on Korean society. They even created, you know, government agencies and quotas and all sorts of stuff to try to, to push, you know, diversity, DEI initiatives, all of these things, right. That we've talked about in so many previous podcasts and that so many of our listeners know very much about in some cases, personally, how this has affected them. So South Korea is no different. They're going through their own wokeification process, but it, it really is, you know, it, it was it was similar to like what Trudeau was doing and is doing in Canada, yeah. where aggressively pushing it from the government, not just not just bottom up, but also top down. Yeah. And in South Korea, what that led to was a massive political, massive political back again, a political backlash unlike anything we've ever seen. Seventy percent of eighteen to twenty nine year old men showing up and voting for the right wing candidate in a mayor election here. Yeah. And for our audio listeners, what I'm showing Nick and, and our viewers on YouTube is this is a, a, a photo of downtown Seoul, like the skyline of the city. No countryside here. Yeah. Skyscrapers all around, right? Like like as urban of a set, like Seoul is a massive urban center of like 10 plus million people, right? This isn't a small town or anything like that. This is the capital city of a major developed country. And eight, eight, 70% of 18 to 29-year-old men decided, I'm going to vote for the right-wing candidate for mayor. And then when you look at the presidential results, Hamilton, go back to the 2022 presidential results. When you look at the exit polls here, this is nationwide. This isn't just Seoul. What you see is that the right-wing candidate almost won outright 18 to 29-year-olds nationwide. Yeah. 
both men and women, despite the fact that he got blown out of the water with millennial and Zoomer women in South Korea. When you look at the breakdown by by gender, what you see is, again, a similar phenomenon nationwide, not just in Seoul. Seoul, it was like they're an open revolt right now, yeah. right? But like even including like the rural parts of, you know, Southwest Korea, which is very liberal, the suburban parts of of Seoul, which is very liberal, right? This is the whole country, right? Not just Seoul. What you see is that nationwide, the right-wing candidate won 18 to 29-year-old men by over 20 points. Yeah. That figure's almost certainly higher in Seoul than the rest of the country, by the way. Well, and what's what's interesting about this in, in Korea is you see this, there's like this alliance between 18 and 40-year-olds and 60-plus-year-olds. Um, it, it's the 30 to, or let me, let me break that down a little 30 bit. 30 to 60 year olds. Yeah. 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 30 to 30 to 60 year olds produce kind of like the, and, and really it's it, actually, if you look at the numbers a little bit more closely, it's 40 to 60 year old Koreans are overwhelmingly left wing. Their kids and their parents are conservative. Yeah. Could They're, it be especially that the younger people are influencing their parents? Well, if they were, they'd be moving to the right. Yeah. Okay. No, it's it's not that. It's it's there's there's actually more of a rebellion going on. The the one the one check on that is eighteen to twenty nine year old women are fifty eight percent. Well, and y that's why you can liberal. see that gender is is driving it. Yeah, gender's driving it. So like the guys are ticked well, at and, all and, this and that feminist leads, stuff, and I it makes me wonder like, are we? following close behind this. Yeah, so I think that in many respects, what has happened in South Korea is actually a harbinger of what's to come, that they're ahead of the curve. Like for for example, and by the way, this was a very close election in part because Yoon, who was the right-wing candidate, um, not exactly the most articulate person. If anybody <laughs> like studies, you know, South Korean politics, even if they're on the right, they probably would agree with that statement. Yeah. He he kind of had a lot of gaffes in the campaign or he said things that were technically true, but in a very inarticulate way. Yeah. For example, he, he, and I, I kind of respect him for this. He took a lot of arrows, a lot of arrows for going on the debate stage and saying something that quite frankly is just true, but is unpopular to say, which is that the feminist movement in this country, in South Korea has contributed to the collapse in the birth rate. South Korea has the lowest birth rate of any country in the entire world, lower yeah. than even Japan. Yeah, it's not the lowest in the world. And he I think pointed it's like out under one. The reason why is look at look, look at the ones who are having kids, the yeah. 18 to 40 year olds, right? Yeah. Look at the gender divide in 18 to 40 year olds or even 18 to 35 year olds and tell me that you can have a stable society with a healthy birth rate when it's 20 points win for conservatives with men, 20 point win with the left with women in the 18 to 30 year old demographic. Like millennials and Zoomers in South Korea hate each other by gender. Men in South Korea are extremely anti-feminist if they're if they're under the age of 30 or under the age of 35 because they look at what's happened in that country and they have said the government has decided to pick winners and losers based on sex. Yep. And I'm being actively discriminated against. Well, and what's what's crazy is that you you look at the people that are between 40 and 60, right? The 40 and 60 year old women and men who are overwhelmingly liberal. And, and to give you an idea by this, the like you don't see the same uh, dynamic in the United States, but um, a, a 40 year old man is that a 40 to 49 year old man in South Korea is more liberal than a 40 to 49 year old woman. 
Like you don't see that in any demographics within the United States. So what what this is is there's a specific term to describe a a generation of um, South Koreans. Like like there there's some hardcore generational divides in in South Korea, obviously as you can see from the data. But there's there there's there's a specific term to describe the generation of South Koreans that grew up during the industrialization and development of the country. So these yeah. were people that were born. Um, you know, that were born like in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, even in the so early 80s. Post-war. Post-war. Like in the, in the massive economic boom that became South and Korea. And the massive economic... So South Korea, just like Japan, went through a massive economic boom after their war. Instead of World War II, though, it was the Korean War. So Korea was destroyed in the 1950s. They rebuilt. People that were born in the 60s and 70s and even early 80s, those are the ones who grew up at a time when the country was developing, industrializing, there were new companies that were starting up. You saw the explosion of Seoul's population, the suburbanization of the country. These are people that got theirs. They yeah. got they got a fantastic spouse. They had their their family. They had a great, fantastic career where their standard of living went from they remember as kids or they certainly know that their grandparents, certainly their grandparents, and even their parents lived in abject poverty. And they got to enjoy the internet. Yeah. And having a nice house in the suburbs of Seoul and having a great corporate job that you could climb the ladder and and retire comfortably with a fantastic pension. And you have, you know, a loving family and, and you know, all the kids that you want. Like they got they got theirs. And that generation has in many respects, in, it, it, they are the equivalent of what we call, you know, the limousine liberals in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or the Lexus liberals like like. There's a term to describe, you know, the, they call them the, the Gangnam liberals because Gangnam is like this super, super posh, wealthy part. Yeah. It, that's the equivalent. That's the South Korean equivalent of like Beverly Hills meets Northern Virginia. Yeah. And those are the type of people that live there. They're, they're the, the people in the prime of their working careers. They're in their 40s or 50s or 60s. They've already made it. And they're voting for the left. They're rich. They're mm -hmm. successful. They have everything. They have a house paid off and everything. They have a corporate job, like, or they're working in government. They, they're the ones running the country, and they're the ones that are imposing the woke ideology that their children, particularly their sons, yeah. are in open rebellion against yeah. right now. Well, I, I think one of the most fascinating things with this, and the reason why you see the gender divide, and you see the same thing in the United States. There was a recent poll that just came out that showed that high school boys are more conservative than they've ever been in the last 40 years, and high school girls are more liberal than they've been in the last 40 years. And I would argue, as we get into the kind of the segment of this, I'm like, why is this happening? When, when the government decides that they're going to pick winners and losers based off of race, based off of sex, whatever it is, and then now the, the push becomes... How do I how do I win in this system? Well, if the way I win within the system is by accumulating political power, then it does two things. One, as a, as individual voters, they start to look for what what group do I fall in in, and how does that how does that put me in a better position to accumulate power? It also adjusts the way politicians and activists and civic leaders and whatnot think about this as well. Because if they're all about like democracy is a numbers game, and if they're all about how do I get as many people in this group in order to to turn the, you know, the, the mechanisms of power in order to redistribute or to set up rules, laws, regulations, quotas, or whatever it is to the advantage of one group over and at the expense. This is an important thing to distinguish how to, if they are benefiting one group at the expense of the, at the other, well, at some point the other group is going to rise up and be like, uh, I'm not having this crap anymore. Right. And that, and that is a, a perfectly logical response to that sort of arrangement. And, 
when you create a situation where you're saying that, okay, men are the source of all evil and, and therefore the government is going to specifically step in and weigh in on the behalf of a particular group. And in this case, it looks to be overwhelmingly women because we're, we're, you're talking about a fairly homogenous society within South Korea. There's not a great deal of ethnic or racial diversity, at least not comparatively speaking to like the United States. Well, then you're going to get breakdowns like this where eventually people start to revolt and say, no, I, this isn't what I signed up for. Equality before the law is one thing, but now this greater push toward equity where now all of a sudden the only way that we have a just society is that if the demographic representation within particular industries or with a particular political representation or within particular income brackets. And, and again, as we pointed out before, they're never looking for perfect equity in bricklayers or sewage workers. Right. It, it's only within what you might consider the more posh professional uh, core or the wielding of political power. Right. Once you start to establish a society rooted in this idea that we're going to use the course of power of government to pick winners and losers. You, you are you are setting things you are setting things up for now society to be divided along those very lines. You know, how do I get into this now with what they've done with like, you know, again, the, the woke approach to all this has been. Um, a, a renewed push on the sexual identity. You'll, you'll notice that in, in wokeism, they're not pushing racism as much. No, now it's more about sexual identity because that actually allows for more people to be able to join your camp and to accumulate political power. And this is why you're seeing it play out in South Korea ahead of the U.S. because South Korea is a homogenous country. You can't use racism and, and ethnic divides to leverage your way to political power on the left in yeah. a country that 100% of the population is Korean. Yeah, yeah except the... Korea still has, um, aside from the whole North Korea, South Korea thing, um, there are a lot of cultural differences based on geographic location and be, whether it be your religion, whether it be, you know, I mean, even the kimchi is different in different areas <laughs> of Korea. Well, but, so. but, when, but when you talk about that, like there's, you're right, there, there's major cultural differences between urban, rural, north, south, north, you know, northwest, southwest, northeast, southeast. I mean, th that all exists. There, there's there's no question. But, but there is like an animosity between different. There's definitely rivalry. Within that div divide, there is some animosity. Yeah, there, there's there's definitely rivalry. There, there's there's no question. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but what I am saying is, is that the way that the way this thing man, but the way those, those things typically manifest themselves is through redistributive policies and, and, and things of that nature, uh, making sure that your particular region gets theirs, right? Bringing home the bacon is what we refer to in American politics. But when, when you, the, the woke component of this, right? The, and again, by woke component, what we mean is people that chalk up disparities within social, economic, or professional society as being attributable, primarily attributable to racism, sexism, or some other form of bigotry, right? That's like the woke approach. And then the woke solution to that problem is government manipulation of the social, political, educational, and, and, and uh, political system in order to, you know, assist the oppressed at the expense of the oppressors. Well, this is where you get young men who are looking around going, I'm not an oppressor. I don't know what I'm being punished for. And now they're actually here's what they've done. They've recognized that they're being punished for things that they didn't do and had no control over. And they've recognized who's punishing them. And they've concluded you're my enemy. Yes. They, they've concluded you're, you, if you are, if you are the political party that represents hatred and animosity toward me because of immutable characteristics that I can't control, then I guess my job is to defeat you. 
That's the conclusion that they came to in, in Seoul. And, and that's what's going to be really interesting to watch as things go forward because the dirty little secret behind the Great Awakening is there is no eventual unity. There is no end state where like, oh, and now we're all equal and happy and everything's wonderful. No, that's not how this works. It's the constant searching for new enemies, new oppressors, which can be blamed and which can be, you know, essentially punished. Oppressed? Punished, <laughs> right? And, and, and taken from. In, in order to in order to um, prop up your own political group, which is the quote oppressed, and it doesn't and, and and understand to be in the oppressed category, you don't have to actually be oppressed. You just have to fit within the category that meets that definition within the liberal progressive narrative. By the way, the reason that that the conservatives were so successful in pulling this off in South Korea is because they they woke up and recognized. We have an opening with the so with these younger generations. So, for example, just a few years before 2022 and 2021, like a decade before in 2011, like the conservatives in South Korea were getting wiped out among 18 to 20, you know, as expected. They were getting utterly destroyed. Yeah. The, the generational divide was they were winning voters back then. It would be voters in their 50s and older. Now it's voters in their 60s and older. Right. And so it was just a stark generational divide like in the U.S., except middle aged South Koreans were. Those entering middle-aged a decade ago or a generation ago were, again, now the ones that are middle-aged, very, very on the left. But the younger voters were also very on the left. And so the conservative party had every incentive to just keep pandering to old voters. And yet they noticed some of these social trends that were emerging in public discourse. And they decided to openly court, like explicitly court. Yeah. 18 to 30 year olds like targeted them in the campaign and said, this might be the first time you've ever voted, but you need to vote for us. And here's the reasons why, like they went out of their way to, to win these voters. They elected as like their party chairman, uh, a guy that was like 35 who was like at the very, you know, upper edge of that demographic in terms of age, but resonated with those people. They put this guy in office in, in their party leadership. And then they, they tailored like their, their party platform and everything to speak to 30 year olds. Like they concluded, we're going to win grandma. Yeah. We're going to win grandpa. This election will be won or lost on whether or not we can break through with this new generation of voters that feel like that they've been betrayed and that, that their parents got theirs and are screwing them over and that they don't have anything to say for it because they're living in an over, you know, over expensive apartment in downtown Seoul that they'll never be able to afford themselves. They're paying sky high rent and they're working a dead end job to make some, you know, to make, to make their parents very rich. Right. Yeah. And in many respects, that's the reason that the conservatives pulled off of what is basically a miraculous victory. They were not expected to win this race. Yeah. And they only barely won. And again, just just look at the breakdown. They they won literally because of eighteen to twenty nine year old men in downtown Seoul voting well, for them. And, and this and and here's the point of all of this because mute asks, why are we still talking about Korea? It's like, gosh dang, I thought we made this pretty clear. It's because we're witnessing something take place in an urban area in another country who is experiencing similar problems to many of the urban areas within the United States. The question is, is why have they managed to pull it off and we haven't? And part of that has to do with you know, the cultural differences between South Korea and, and the United States, part of it has to do with the way the government tried to implement certain policies versus kind of the, a, a grassroots um, movement that's happened within the United States. But part of it is also this, the conservative side in South Korea 
didn't try to out-liberal the liberals in order to win an election. Like, I'm so sick of conservatives in the United States believing, well, well, the way that we're going to win, the way that we're going to win these voters that apparently haven't voted in us for like two decades now is that we're going to show them that we're truly the ones that appeal. Look, do I believe that? Do I believe that free market capitalism works for a suburban liberal, right? That continues to vote against it. Yes, I do. But I also recognize at this point that we have portions of the population that have become so alienated and feel like nobody sticks up for them. You want to understand, okay, if you're, if you're a liberal, if you're a moderate Republican, and you want to understand why Trump's appeal with working class Americans, which used to vote a lot more lockstep in with kind of like Democrat candidates in the past. It was because they felt like he was the one guy that actually understood their plight, which is fascinating because Donald Trump has not experienced the life of a, of a, you know, automobile worker in, in Michigan, right? But they felt like he got it. He understood what they were going through and he was willing to stick up for him, even if they hadn't had shared life experiences. And part of the issue that we're facing right now, not just with the way that we appeal to men or the way we appeal to people that could potentially vote for us is that we're not doing a good job of actually saying, yeah, all the insanity that you see, you're right, it's insane, and these are the people that are perpetrating the insanity. Like, I I run into this all the time where I'll get people that will get frustrated. Well, Nick, don't you think you're a little bit too divisive? If me pointing out the thing that they're doing is divisive, then can we all acknowledge that the thing that they're doing is also divisive? Right, or is it just me pointing it out? And, and that's the problem that we've gotten into. And it's like, until right. you have it's enough. Like, it's like they can wage the culture war as long as you don't fight back. It, they don't consider it a culture war unless you fight back. Yeah, and until you fight back, you're not allowed to notice. You noticing them doing what they're doing, that's what's divisive. It's like armies are invading and you noticed and you started fighting back and now that's the war. Whoa, that's whoa, why whoa. we declare war a lot sooner than like, there are certain it, it, things that are an act of war. It, it, well, the, the left's response to conservatives is there'd be no culture war if you just stop fighting. You're right. There'd just be surrender. Yeah, that's what the Nazis thought. <laughs> the, right? the, 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 there'd be no culture war if, if all you all these people fighting. would just surrender. <laughs> yeah, there'd be no culture war if you weren't fighting it. Well, okay, but that's the problem is that if and if our response to all the other people that are looking at the things going on going, this doesn't make sense. This is ridiculous. And oh, by the way, you living in a you living in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles right now where you've got massive homeless encampments, you've got runaway crime, you don't feel safe, you can't take your kid to the public park park your tax dollars are paying for because it's overridden with either drug users, drug sellers, or, or other criminal elements. Like if at some point you're not recognizing that the people that constantly try to let them out of jail earlier and the people that constantly are trying to make excuses that the reason why these social ills exist is because you haven't given enough money in taxes. Dude, if you haven't recognized at some point that that's the problem and an, oh, by the, oh, by the way, there actually is a solution to the sort of inner city blight that you're seeing. And oh, by the way, it's not the same progressive liberals you've put in power for decades at a time. If they could fix it, you want to know what Gavin Newsom ran on, I think in his reelection campaign for mayor, you want to know what Gavin Newsom ran on in his reelection campaign for mayor in San Francisco, ending homelessness. Mm-hmm. How's that worked out? Hey, Gav, I mean, they promoted you to governor of California. Well, when up is down and left is right, then he he accomplished his goal. There's a great (laughs) super chat that I want your response to, Nick. Uh, Thumper (laughs) says, 
Nick, it's not working here with youth males because the conservatives are still blaming men for what is being done to them. R is doing the same as D. No, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I and look, I, I've been guilty of that before in part because, well, well, here's. I know you are. Uh, I know that you have been. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm, well, I'm a, you want to really, tell the story? Yeah. Honestly, there really are crappy people on either side of the gender divide. And to call out the crappy ones is not the problem. The problem is we also need to encourage the ones that want to. No, do no, no. Here's, Nick is referring. Uh, go ahead. Now. Yeah. Let me tell the story. Here, here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying this. I, I, I definitely, I spent a lot of my time calling on men to be good men. And guess what? I'm not apologizing for that. Now I will say this. I completely appreciate the fact that young men growing up at this point right now are going through something that I didn't experience in my teens and early twenties, which is an absolute like cultural denigration of what it means to be a man. So I, I can, I, even though I didn't experience it, I can appreciate that if you're an, if you're a early twenties man right now, and you are trying to do your best. And yet when you show up on a college campus or on a work site, you are automatically put at a competitive disadvantage now by law, or you're told by all your college professors or all your peers, or by most young liberal women that you're the problem, you're evil, you're a misogynist, you're a potential rapist, you're all these other things. When you've done none of these things, you are responsible for none of the things that you are now bearing the burden for there's going to be a point where you feel like, screw this. And how you react next is going to have a lot of impact on the way that society sees you and the way that society just functions or operates. The, the, the thing that I tell young men especially is that sucks and you don't deserve it. But the only way that you're going to fix it is by actually taking it on. That's it. You can't stop being capable. You can't stop being strong. You can't stop being noble. You can't stop being honorable. You can't stop being honest. You can't do these things. You can't stop doing these things because society has decided they're no longer going to reward it. That's, that's the paradox of all of this. It isn't fair. It sucks. But if you're willing to step up and actually be those things, you will be the one that actually turns the ship around and saves this place. And this is why. And if you're going to sit around waiting for somebody else to do it, or waiting for society to correct. If you're going to say like, you know what? I will agree to be a good man as soon as society rewards me for being a good man. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And again, that stinks. Well, because a good man doesn't wait. Like that's like by definition, you can't be a good man and just, oh, I'll just wait it out. No, but by the same token, it is really, we say this all the time when we talk about government policy and really it applies to culture as well. You get more of what re you reward and less of what you punish. And right now we are punishing men for the very things that we need them to be. And so many of them are saying, you know what? Fine. You don't want it. Then you won't get it. In fact, you'll get the opposite of it because that's apparently what you want, right? And my only thing to tell young men is I understand the motivation. I understand the impulse to want to do that. Please don't because you're one of the only things that's going to save this place. The, the other problem side is of, there is an extreme backlash coming. Well, yeah, but the other side of that is, is self-destructive behavior. It's, it's both. We've talked about this in the right wing backlash. Like Tina's right. And Nick is right. That one side is that, that dark side manifesting itself where it's like, I'll, I'll show you how much of an oppressor I really can be. But then the other side of it is the self-destructive side, which is men deciding to to just abandon society and withdraw from it and fall into things like porn or drugs or alcoholism or they're basically they're basically you know checking out right hit hit you know pressing the exit button and and that's why you're seeing like it's 
overwhelmingly men that are, you know, dying from like the opioid crisis, right? That the, the the overwhelming majority of, of drug deaths are, are men. The overwhelming majority of alcohol deaths are men. The overwhelming majority of suicides well, are it's, men. It's never, it's never been, here's the other thing that's happening. At the same time that men are told not to be men and are punished for actually doing the things that society really needs from men, it's never been easier for men to get the other things that used to drive them to be good from someplace else. Alcohol, drugs, porn, everything else, all the things that kind of hit, give the, you those dopamine hits. It is now easier to get them from a whole host of other things from what, than what it used to be. And, and this is the other part too, that I, this is the other thing too, that I, I'd like to say, at least from my perspective to young women, because there's a lot of young women out there that are also furious that they're now compared to every girl that shows up on the, whatever podcast or fresh right. and fit as if they're all just worthless club girls with a body count of 275. And they're like, no, we don't want that either. We, we want to find the men that want to be the, the good men and that sense of traditional masculinity and all the positive ramifications of that. And, and the other thing I will say, because this is the part that, again, this is one of those crucial roles that I believe that, that women also play. It's civilization doesn't happen just when men are good or just when women are good. Civilization happen when good men and good women come up together and build families. That's what happens. Women have so much power over men that I don't think they actually recognize it. And I don't just mean power in the sense of civilizing men or, or, or driving men to be the best versions of themselves. They also drive men to be the worst versions of themselves. That power goes in both directions. We've got a quick super chat here from uh, Joe W. And he says, at what point does this all come to a head? That, that's a great question. And, and depending on what you're asking, we, we've, like I said, we've done full on podcasts talking about things like national divorce. We've done ones about the right wing backlash. We've, we've talked about, you know, does this correct or does it break apart? Like what happens? So you got to break apart and rebuild or can we save it? I would say that one of the reasons why I'm not blackpilled and we're not a black pill conservative channel, even though a lot of conservative channels kind of I beg to differ. Okay. Christian is, <laughs> um, is, is because I, I honestly believe that one of the things that is so disturbing to me is the amount of young people that uh, young people, I sound like such an old man when I say that, but, but the amount of young people that have been convinced that it's elections, which determine their future elections will no doubt impact your future. But that's not what determines it. I think the more men and women that actually decide that I'm, I'm not playing this game by the rules that I've been assigned because they don't work and they're garbage and they're, they're deliberately designed to manipulate me into thinking that the only way that I can achieve what I want for my life is through politics or activism. It's by kissing up to some politician or being the politician that is going to steal, rob, and take from other people in order to give it to the group I happen to occupy at that moment. That's garbage. The more men and women that are actually going to step up and say, no, I'm going to focus on the things that I know make me a better person, spiritually, emotionally, professionally, intellectually. I'm going to focus on those things. I'm going to focus on making myself developed in those areas so that I am the sort of man that is worthy of a good woman. So I am the sort of woman that is worthy of a good man. And that together we're going to, we're going to not only have children, but then we're not going to hand them over for someone else to raise that doesn't believe the things that we do. We're going to take personal responsibility for making sure that we actually raise children that to believe those things as well, because they work. And what's going to happen is the more people that choose that path, they're going to be the ones that actually provide the example, not necessarily in the argument that they make, but in the way they live their lives. Because when this crap comes tumbling down and we're already starting to see it. And one of the areas that we're starting to see it is within the trans movement. 
It's the number of kids that are actually trying to detransition now who are in their 20s that are looking at the nice liberal adults that convinced them that this was going to make them happier, looking back at them and going, what the hell did you do to me? It's going to be more people like that, and it's not just going to be in that community. It, it's going to be young women that realize that they were sold a lie about OnlyFans. It's going to be young men that were sold a lie about what genuine masculinity actually looks like. And when they actually hit that point, and I hope they start hitting it in their early 20s, not their 40s and 50s, because it becomes really difficult to change course. But when they start hitting in their 20s and 30s and they start looking around, they're like, I, I am tired. I am tired of what the experts have told me. I am tired of what Hollywood has told me. I'm tired of what manipulative politicians have told me. I want to see what works. They're going to start to look for the people in their lives, in their communities that were able to push through all of the absurdity. They cut right through the fog of it all and they went for something that actually worked. And the fruit of that is manifested in their lives in their relationships, in their professions, in their kids. They've got it together. They have the joy. They have the peace, which surpasses all understanding. And that's going to be the point where they're going to look around going, what did you do? What, why did you not buy this? And that's when you have your opportunity to explain. And that is going to be the most powerful testimony you give for your faith, for the life decisions that you made, for the choices that you made, for yourself, for your family, for your kids. So that's where it comes to a head. It comes to a head in a thousand different ways and a thousand different interactions with people who are at different points within their life. The moment we start looking for it, when does it come to a head in, in a final fight? And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll end with this because it's about time for us to wrap up. I had somebody the other day, and I, maybe I shared this already on another podcast, but I'll share it again here. I had somebody the other day ask me, they're like, Nick, can we win this? Can we pull it all off? And and I know what they meant by it, and I get it, and it's a legitimate question, but I'm tired of being asked it. I'm tired of being asked it because what it suggests is, well, if we can't, then what does it all matter? If it's the right thing to do, if it is the honorable thing to do, it matters because it's the honorable thing to do. And I don't want people on the other side of this debate looking at me going, well, if I can just convince him that he can't win, he'll give up. I'm never giving up. I'm never giving up. I'm never going to start fighting, stop fighting for this ever. This is the course of action I have chosen because I believe it is true and honorable and noble and I'm fighting for it. I don't care if I'm the last person left to do it. And if you get enough people with that sort of conviction, you win. But if you have everyone looking around, looking over the shoulder, wondering, well, gosh, you know, is it? Can, can we even pull this thing off? Well, then all the other side needs to do is convince you that you can't. And it is amazing how many people fail, not because they lacked the capacity, but because they lacked the will in the face of opposition. So make up your mind. Make up your mind to do the right thing no matter what happens. Because even if you don't win for you, you might just win for your kids. And that's worth it. All right. I want to thank everybody for joining. I know we, we went about two hours on this. Like I, I know sometimes we get into some of the technical weeds and we spend a lot of time talking about what's going on in South Korea, but because we, we think that has the potential to be a bellwether for things in this country, for maybe greater things within the West. And I think it's really important that we take time to look at how this is playing out in other cultures around the world, how 
this is playing out not just within our own backyard, but in other places, because there might be times where we have to look to different strategies to figure out how, how do we, how do we turn it around? Now, before we close out, we had a lot of super chat questions and there's no way we're closing out before we, we get to some of these, but for our audio listeners, for anybody that has to go, anybody that's kind of looking at that two hour mark and says, Hey, I got to get back to work or I got to do something else. Um, you know, we, we've covered all the stuff that we intended to cover today, but for anybody that would like to stay, listen to the super chats, listen to some of these questions in this interaction, this is actually some of our favorite parts. So we're going to, we're going to do that right now, but I want to thank everybody for joining us. And I really want to thank good ranchers for sponsoring us. I also want you to know everybody that has wondered about maybe trying out good ranchers or signing up for one of the subscriptions, you know, one of, one of these, you know, whenever these companies take a chance on a, on a podcast like us, they're trying to see if we can, if this can be mutually beneficial, they're helping us. We want to help them. We want to deliver. So if it's something that you're even considering trying, we want you to know that we personally really appreciate it because it sends the message to the people that are willing to work for shows like us to help keep our viewpoints and our worldview, you know, forefront and, and actually having the ability to speak on a platform like this, it really does have an impact. So if you were wondering, I'm here to tell you it really does have an impact. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go to some of our super chats. I want to thank everybody too for being so patient. I know some of you asked these questions earlier and you know maybe we're at a different point in the podcast, but we want to get to them now. So Hamilton, let, let's, let's start knocking them out. All right, we got one from Gun Griffin here. Nick, I believe you were the one who said U.S. is one republic made up of 50 small republics. With that system... Doesn't that mean at some point a conflict will become an organized voted confederacy? So that's certainly how it, it worked last time. <laughs> yeah, the, the quote that I usually use is that we are a republic of republics. Um, and that's actually built into the system. If you look at the way that uh, territories became states is that they were they had to guarantee a Republican form of government. They had to guarantee uh, certain you know freedoms, certain mechanisms and processes for processes for electing officials. It didn't have to be exact as every other state. Nebraska, for instance, has a unicameral legislature. It's the only one that does. Um, but there were certain conditions. And so that what that does create and I think is valuable, is that it does create a mechanism where people can leave one little republic within the United States that they don't feel is governed properly or culturally fits their needs or wants or desires, and they can move to another one. Now, if you get to a point where the federal government starts to assume responsibilities and roles for itself that was never given within Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, if it starts ignoring those limitations on federal power, that's where you do run into an issue where now some of the republics might feel that being a part of this larger republic is no longer beneficial or conducive to their own liberties or freedoms. And that's where you start to get into the wording of the, of the Declaration of Independence and why Thomas Jefferson said it was appropriate for people once they, once they are leaving the political bound, bind, excuse me, political binds that had held them together for, you know, extended periods of time, centuries even, it was appropriate for them to be able to explain why that, that, that was taking place. And you could see a situation in the future, especially if, if the federal government doesn't understand its proper role. And, and the biggest problem with this is the left. It's the political left. They are the ones that predominantly want to try to govern the entire country from Washington, D.C. And I wish they wouldn't. I wish they would understand that this is dangerous, not just for those of us that think differently from the left. It's dangerous for the left because once you convince those of us on the right that there's no other way and this is just the way it is done, it'll be the federal government imposing things on California California doesn't want. So this is the part where we're supposed to display a little bit of humility and grace toward one another and recognize that as, might, as much as we might not agree on certain things, federalism is a way to actually mitigate those problems without leading to full-on revolt. 
But if they're not going to respect it, then I, I fear that you're correct and that we will we will arrive at a point where certain republics within our larger republic will decide this is no longer in their best interest. It's no longer the way to preserve their liberty or preserve their societies, and they will choose to leave. And I hope that doesn't happen. But the only way it's not going to happen is that if the federal government once again understands its po- proper constitutional boundaries and limitations. The professor Keen said, of course, the cities are liberal slash degenerates. Just look at the excess of Rome. The cities were full of debauchery back then, and it still holds true today. The cities were the first place to convert to Christianity in ancient Rome, not the countryside. Yeah, I, I think it's important to recognize that it's it's like anything else. Liberal uh, cities and urban centers, um, we, we talk about this a lot in other characteristics. Like, when, for instance, when we talk about masculinity, um, Characteristics of masculinity usually uh, associate themselves with things like physical strength, um, competitiveness, a capacity and capability for violence. Those are morally neutral, right? They can be used for good. They can be used for ill. All right. So what are characteristics of cities? Well, you tend to have more cultural, uh, more multicultural engagement. You tend to have uh, more openness to various ideas. You also tend to have uh, closer systems and, and more complex rules with respect to social interaction. They tend to be hubs for trade and, and economic prowess and, and capability. A lot of those things, a lot of those characteristics are neutral until you look at specific outworkings of them. So for instance, um, increased uh, travel and trade can lead to increased prosperity. It can also lead to, you know, a a contagion center for the bubonic plague, right? These things can be morally neutral. And what we want to do is we want to pull out the positive manifestations of those characteristics and we want to mitigate the negative characteristics. And And the same thing can be said for the country, right? There's, there's positive characteristics or there's characteristics of the country that can be both positive and negative, and, and so I think it's what's appropriate to do is understand that, understand that many of those characteristics are morally neutral until we, we train and condition them into a particular way to where we do have that positive manifestation. Whitfield Grove said, I'm worried where Canada is going, inflation, censorship, housing crisis. There seems to be a large divide between rural and urban as well as corruption. Vote for Pierre. <laughs> We've talked about him before on this show, actually. Yeah. We're huge fans of Pierre. We, we're huge fans of Pierre. We actually think he's, he's one of the most um, articulate defenders of uh, conservative and liberty-based uh, philosophy. Um, you know, I, I, it, it is actually a little bit shocking to see how quick uh, Canada um, has embraced a lot of this. I mean, J- Justin Trudeau is like your quintessential leftist politician that y- you can go back you can go back several years back and he'll say, we have a gun culture in Canada and nobody's going to take your guns and we're going to respect that gun culture. And then he gets power and the right conditions are met. And then you find out what he truly believes and what he truly believes in the exercising of government power in, in the service of progressive policies. And if getting elected requires him to say one thing to you and then circumstances change, well, then he will change with it because I, I don't think he's rooted in any sort of like significant moral positions. It's more about the adjudication of political power. And because he believes that his underlying political philosophy, that of progressivism is um, positive, universally positive, then that which expedites the the carrying out of those policies is something that he'll be willing to do. And he's certainly not going to let, you know, pesky little things like constitutional limitations on power um, or, or, you know, millennia's worth of tradition stand in the way of doing that. And, and that's what makes that sort of um, kind of aggressive and I, I would argue arrogant policymaking so damaging to a culture and a society. This one is from SWBC. We the people will become the judge and the juror. 
Anger is building and patience is thin. Nobody is untouchable. Media, government, cor- uh, corporations, we will give out punishment to all the corrupt. Yeah, that's that dark side of the... That's the right-wing backlash right there, yeah, it's, manifesting it's, itself. Yeah, it's the idea of rule of man or rule of law. And um, and this is, again, one of the problems. It, w- it was funny. I... <laughs> Chris is probably going to call me a boomer for this, but um, I was thinking the other day, I get so sick of hearing these, these, you know, federal and, and state prosecutors come down going, no one is, they always, they always say this, this is my chance to prove that no one is above the law. And it's always when they're going after Trump or some other powerful uh, Republican or conservative figure. I, I wanted to do a meme where it showed one of these DA saying no one is above the law with Joe Biden, a name tag that says, hello, my name is no one. Um, because clearly some people are, are above the law. Hunter Biden seems to be above the law. Hillary Clinton seems to be above the law. Uh, Joe Biden seems to be above the law. And the problem with constantly trashing the rule of law and, and not actually providing equal protection before the law is that people lose faith in it and say, if this is the way the game is going to be played, then it doesn't make sense to sit on the sidelines. And it certainly doesn't make sense to sit here and, and give out you know, noble pronouncements about the rule of law when that's not what's going on. And, and so th- that's very, very problematic. And again, it's another one of these issues where I look at some of my, my more extreme left-wing colleagues, because not all of them believe this, but my more extreme left-wing colleagues, I'm like, I don't know how you think this ends for you because you are trashing the very people that you rely upon to actually enforce the law. And if you're not actually going to have genuine rule of law and you've trashed the people that you depend on to enforce the law, what do you think happens next, Sparky? Right. You, do you think you benefit from that? Do you think all the people that weigh a buck 25 soaking wet that couldn't impose their will on anybody physically if they tried, do you think they do well in a society where the men that are capable of imposing their will have decided that the rule of law no longer matters? Like I'm desperately trying to fight against that sort of thing. But you know, what would be really nice is that the left would like to join hands and once again, recognizing that rule of law means equality before the law. It doesn't mean the law is a tool where, which you now arbitrarily use to punish your political uh, opponents while giving a pass to your allies. And so I, I get the sentiment, but I'm, I'm doing everything I can to fight against it because I want rule of law. And that's it. Alrighty, Nick is not working here with Youth Mills because of the conservatives. Oh, okay, we are just, all right, we're yep. just those. All right, listen, I want to thank you all very much for, again, the Super Chats. Thank you for waiting around. I really appreciate your patience. Again, we try to make it a rule that we get to as many questions as, as possible, and we try to answer all the Super Chats because we recognize that when you're taking the time to support the show, we want to make sure that we get to your questions. So if we can't always get to it in the moment because we've, we're on a particular thread, just... You know, again, don't don't think it's because we're ignoring or we don't respect or appreciate it. Once again, I'd also like you guys to encourage looking to join in our uh, community chat in Circle. It's where we get a lot of our ideas for episodes. We also have a lot of follow up communication in there. And uh, going forward, I'm not going to reveal too much right now, but going forward, it's going to be a much more integral part of what we do on the show. Once again, thank you all very much for joining. And I want to give a special thank you to Christian. He, he had this theory and he was positing this theory three years ago when everybody thought it was insane and stupid and, and ridiculous. And he stuck with it and did the data and did the research. It's one of the reasons why we call him our, our political prognosticator and resident historian is because he, he tries to make sure that he's got sufficient political or excuse me, sufficient empirical evidence and logic backing up the claims that he makes. And uh, I think you did a great job here, Christian. So I'm going to say nice things about you. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for sticking with us, and we will see you next episode.